Super Steve, Steve-O. It's Jojo from Calgary. I haven't called you for a while. Uh, anyway, I'm currently not on any bikes. Uh, every evening, I go for long walks right now. Usually during the week and on the weekends, I've started to take my bike out or bikes out now that it's better weather. Uh, big news for me, uh, just before the COVID crisis hit, I bought a new bike, a gravel bike, staying with the Salsa family, because you know I have a cutthroat, and I named him Bam Bam, so I got a Salsa Warbird. Oh, a rabbit just ran in front of me. Hi. And uh, so, yeah, I bought a Salsa Warbird, a gravel bike, because I entered a ton of gravel rides for this year, and uh, a couple have been cancelled, and I'm pretty sure a few more are, so... That's too bad, but it's better to be safe. Anyway, I named the Salsa Warbird Pebbles. So there you go. I have Bam Bam and Pebbles. My bike packing bike and my gravel bike. Uh, other than that, um, it's a beautiful evening here in Calgary. And uh, oh, this pandemic is incredible. Never seen anything like this in my lifetime. And I'm old. Anyway, uh, just wanted to say hi. And still urging people to get out there and ride your bike, run, walk, whatever. Uh, just as long as you do your social distancing and everybody does their little thing to make sure that we take care of ourselves and our own and everybody else. So hopefully everybody's having fun as much as you possibly can in the world we know right now. And uh, hopefully later on this summer, we'll start seeing everybody when we go for rides. Hopefully. Anyway, stay well, stay safe, stay healthy. Bye, everyone. Joanne Maurice, thank you for that voice intro. You're my biggest fan, I think. I think this is probably the... The third voice intro you sent me from uh, a couple from uh, the Bikepack Canada podcast and then this one. So I really appreciate it. And you're not old. Get out of here. You're not old. You're just getting started. Got a couple bikes, gravel bike and a bike packing bike. You're inspirational is what you are. And uh, I love you. And thanks for reaching out to me. Hello. Welcome again to My Back 40 and the My Back 40 podcast. I'm your host, Steve O'Shaughnessy. I hope you're having a a nice morning or evening or afternoon or whenever I happen to be catching you listening to my voice. Um, how's everybody doing? Like, uh, what have you been up to? You in the lockdown phase still? Or, you know, I know that this podcast reaches people all over the globe and um, I'd like to know what you guys are up to. I know in different parts in Canada, we're not in super lockdown. We can still get out and uh, ride our bikes and uh, get out and run and, and hit the trails. But I was listening to another podcast the other day and they were talking about, you know, in California, people who live and have trails just backing right up onto their, onto their properties and there's ribbon across it and they can't even go into the woods and play. I don't know about that, man. I know we have to keep uh, away from each other, but um, a full lockdown like that's crazy. So um, for those of you who are dealing with that, hang in there. Um, I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. It's going to be interesting to see how we come out the other side of all this, but uh, the best you can do now is just uh, keep active, 
boost that immune system, eat well, hang out with your family and, uh, just be grateful for what we actually have. And maybe that's what's happening. Maybe we're going to become more grateful, um, and look at our own lives under a different lens and see that things are pretty okay. You know, things are pretty okay. And, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll just see. So I hope you guys are well. I hope everyone's healthy, you and yours and your family and your kids. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking about all you guys and sending you lots of love. If you want to reach out to me, you can do so. You can email me at myback40podcast at gmail.com. You can send me voice intros, guest suggestions, and feedback. I love hearing from you, you folks. So uh, send me some notes. Uh, let me know what you're up to. Let me know how you're training or what you're doing or what you're thinking about. Love to hear it. I want to thank Rebound Cycle and Cycling 101 for their support. By supporting me, you're supporting the My Back 40 podcast, and I love it. And uh, still running that promo code for Cycling 101. I know everyone's out there probably doing their thing and maybe keeping up on the training, which I think is a good idea. Don't want to get complacent, hit the couch, eat chips, and watch Netflix. You want to get out there and exercise. And if you need a consultation regarding your training program, you can reach out to Cycling 101, and if you use the discount code 101VIP20, you're going to save 20% off that service, and that also goes for bike fits. If you're feeling like you're not mechanically efficient on your bike, sore feet, sore knees, hips, neck, and back, could be your bike fit. Uh, reach out to them. They can do remote bike fits by just looking at video of your, um, of your spin. If you have a trainer, you can uh, video yourself spinning from the side, from the front, and from the back. And you can send that to Cycling 101 and they'll do an analysis of that and make some recommendations. And you can use that same promo code 101VIP20 to save 20% off that bike fit. And if you'd like to support MyBack40 and the MyBack40 podcast, you can do so. If you head on over to MyBack40.org, you can check out the different support options I have under the support page. Um, I feel weird kind of asking for support, to be honest. But, um, you know, it's a lot of work making a podcast. And if you find value in the content that I'm putting out, I'd really appreciate some love and you can do that. I am working on merchandise. Uh, I've got uh, shirts and stickers on the way and there are some support options which will include uh, that stuff. And then in the future, I would like to get some hats and hoodies together. So uh, those who support me in the My Back 40 podcast will be rewarded. And uh, I really, really appreciate it. All the money that I make is just going to go right back into it. Uh, so I can bring you guys awesome conversations from all around the world. And I hope you're digging it. So I'm pretty excited about today's conversation. Today on the My Back 40 podcast, I'm speaking with Curtis Litton, the founder of the Spandex Panda. Uh, we connected uh, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, actually, to, uh, to discuss the evolution of Spandex Panda. What started as a mascot has become a clothing brand. And um, it's pretty cool. He uh, graciously sent me a couple pieces and uh, the one thing I uh, I really liked was the uh, the Primo Strato SS top. It's a merino blend top. Um, he, it, I'm not used to wearing super tight stuff, man. I felt like I was naked riding that thing. But you know what was really nice about that top? I went on a 50K ride on the single speed just last night, and um, it wasn't warm out. Um, but man, does it ever regulate your temperature? I've worn Merino pieces before, but, um, this piece was really, really nice. Um, I'm curious to see what it's going to be like when it's plus 30. Um, it's very thin though. So I don't imagine, uh, it's going to be that bad, but man, good fit, good quality. Um, I really like their shit actually. And I'm really glad he sent me that, uh, those pieces. So I would uh, encourage you to, uh, check Spandex Panda out. 
And you can do that by going over to their website, thespandexpanda.com. And uh, they've got a great store there, so you can check out all their wares. And um, yeah, so Curtis and I chat about the evolution of the Spandex Panda. Uh, We chat about vintage bikes and uh, Fondos. It's kind of outside my wheelhouse being kind of a mountain biking, bikepacking, dirt bag. Um, I don't actually own a road bike or a gravel bike. I'd really like to get a gravel bike, though. The road doesn't really speak to me. Um, that's too dangerous, man. Yeah, it's just a little bit too dangerous for my liking and uh, a bit too busy. I like kind of being off in the woods, but, um, yeah, a gravel bike, I could be down with that. Would have been nice to have a gravel bike on the route I rode last night, man. I probably could have knocked off another 10 or 15 minutes off my time if I had skinnier tires, but I digress. So, uh, without further delay, I bring you Curtis Litton. Yeah. So live, live for the moment, be present, you know, live for the now. Absolutely. Follow your dreams. Well, and that's, <laughs> and that, well, and that's like I've been listening to your podcast the last three since you started on your own. Like that's been a big thing. And move from Vancouver out to Invermere, you know, yeah, money and life. But now they're, you know, life kind of does take a, a triumph sometimes. And you kind of sit back and you're like, okay, well, I still got to make some money to live. But what are those things I want to do actually? And, and I should probably start doing those things. Yeah. And, and, you know, spending, you know, two to four hours in a car trying to get back and forth to a job. <laughs> You know, that, yeah. that, that, you know, the pay might be really awesome, but it's like, you're, you're just, you're just burning that money away by, you know, and not only burning that money away, but kind of, um, you know, charring the relationships you have at the same time, because, you know, you can't, those are yeah. hours that are being taken out of, taken out of your, your day and away from your relationships with your, you know, your partner, your kids or your relationship with the outdoors. Like, you know, it, it, it absolutely cuts into all that right and it's uh yeah, well, there's, all, yeah all those things do affect a person's like your health and your health not only just physical but even mental nowadays which has become a bigger concern right like you know you brought up on the podcast before where hopping on your bike for hours sometimes it is that chance to kind of clear your thoughts and maybe you know like debate some things or think about some things and kind of work them out and you know change gears go up and he'll blow off some steam but it's a it's a long-term benefit out of it for sure so um, and it's, it's funny now, like with a gas prices, like gas has dropped, but you know, what's to say that gas doesn't stop moving or something like now what, what's your mode of transportation? You're going to have to ride a bicycle to get around if you want. So, yeah. It's the perfect, like it's, if it's the perfect apocalyptic, <laughs> apocalyptic machine, right? <laughs> apocalyptic. Yeah. Right. It's like the perfect machine. It'll be like Mad Max and a lot of bikepacking rigs with spikes sticking out the front. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, yeah. for sure, man. So what what do you do out there in Kelowna? What's your uh what's your day job? Well, right right now I'm helping out a tour company, uh Cheers Okanagan Tours. I'm helping them uh basically we coined up a phrase called uh, an experience architect. And so I've come on board based on my experience in both hospitality, traveling around the world and working in, uh you know in the tourism world. I've worked high seasons for probably the last ten years in different countries. Uh the last five have been between Mexico and Canada and now I basically get paid to uh, design the logistics and all the details that it takes to make a tour and how to create like a five-star experience. Oh, fun. And so, yeah, it's, it's creative. It's local. It's, you know, you're, I get to go out and choose some tours and do them. Actually, I get to test them all out. You can get as, you know, as funky and original as you want with them. So, you know, you're like, Oh, I saw this here. Maybe this will work or, Oh, okay. If I tweak this and this, this will work or nobody's doing this at all. How come that doesn't make sense. We should definitely start that. So 
Um, it's a super cool opportunity. Uh, I get to do it locally. I've worked around the wine world also a whole bunch in the Okanagan. So it's kind of the, the booze and the bikes world are the two <laughs> worlds I play in. Yeah. And it's a perfect compliment to itself. So between that and, uh, and obviously spandex banded, the clothing line, um, that's my little baby that kind of, you know, I spend more time, more effort. Every time I'm on a bike, I call it a, an R and D ride kind of thing. Cause yeah. you know, like today I was like, well, okay, how does fleece, um, compare it to Merino? Cause everything in my collection is Merino and it was all made in Italy. And so I'm like, okay, so if I ride, you know, the same temperatures yesterday for a little quick little spin, what's, wh- how do I feel afterwards? Am I warmer? Am I colder? Did I start sweating? Sh- you know, was I just freezing? Did the wind go right through me? Like all these little things, because, and then I take that back and I jot some things down and the next piece I have to design, I'm like, okay, take these things into account. Is there something to tweak to modify and kind of go from there? So, yeah, that's cool. So how, when did you start, uh, that company? Uh, well, the company itself is probably about five years old. The clothing part of it is probably about four, but, um, <laughs> I kind of laugh that most things in my life or pretty much all things in my life I've done backwards. Um, you know, like, so this company, it didn't start with a business plan and a whole bunch of research and, you know, I didn't work for some clothing designer in the past. It started with a mascot at a bike shop in Calgary. It was a snowy winter day um, and we're sitting around trying to drum up, you know, how do we get some business? What can we do for some cool marketing stuff? And I had done some mascot work in university, kind of put myself through school and uh, I'm like, hey, why don't we get a mascot? This would be kind of fun. You know, we can dress it up and, you know, people will love it. And so we went online on eBay, I think, or something at the time. And, uh, and this is probably about seven or eight years ago now. And we said, well, okay, what animal is nobody using? And we kind of looked at different animals and the panda just kind of stuck out. Um, the only thing that was close was the World Wildlife Federation was using a panda, but it's a very static image. So it didn't really, we didn't see it as a conflict. We're like, okay, so it was my credit card we put down. Uh, it was 200 bucks and I bought a panda suit. And it's a big, furry, fluffy panda. Um, and it showed up and uh, we kind of put a... a shop t-shirt on it and walked around a bunch and uh, we thought it was hilarious people took some photos of it and it was kind of an entertaining thing and two guys at the shop at the time were so excited about you know what this could do so they just bought their brand new cameras or little dlrs and they're uh, super pumped like hey well, let's take it here let's go there so we just did it honestly for shits and giggles yeah there's a way to go do something after hours at the shop like oh hey there's an event here well do you think we can get in like as joe public there's no way we could ever get into some of these things but if we showed up with a mascot and a camera guy that looked kind of official, maybe we'd get in. And, <laughs> and sure enough, we got into That's like sneaky. different little things. And eventually, so then people said, well, well, who is that? Or what is that? And we didn't even have a name. So at the shop one day, uh, we put some cycling spandex on them. And I just walked around for a bit and the name Spandex Panda kind of <laughs> came out. And so from there, we're like, well, geez, okay, we should make something out of this. So Facebook and Twitter were just kind of getting going. And we said, okay, well, let's make a profile. So came up with a profile um, for you know Facebook and Twitter. And then we just made like thespanicspanda uh, at gmail.com as an email address and made up some business cards so it looked official. And then we'd send out, you know, this next party's coming up at this bar. Hey, do you guys want a mascot? Um, okay, sure. Uh, whatever. And so we'd show up and we got VIP'd into places. And then we realized some brands wanted to actually brand us. So then it became a freelance mascot gig. So like we, I did a gig with uh, Red Bull for a while. Um, I did one with Alpine Canada where they basically paid me to come out for the day um, and wear, let's say, the Alpine Canada uh, T-shirt on top of the panda. And we'd walk around the hill and high-five people and have a blast and hop on a GT snow racer or whatever. And, uh, and they loved it because 
that's when social media was kind of just getting started. And what we ended up doing was um, whatever T-shirt we were wearing, people would stop and get their photo. And this is when phones and photos were kind of just becoming a thing. And so they take their photo with this panda and this advertising of whatever brand we were rocking for the day, and they put it in their social media feed. So it was kind of a way to start, you know, before the hashtag became a thing, that was how we were infiltrating into people's social media. Um, one of the fun ones we did was with this drum and DJ show out of Calgary, where essentially um, we show up at a bar that they were playing at. They gave us a T-shirt and a bar tab, and we go around and like high five and fist pump and dance and whatever else to get a bunch of photos. Put them on our Facebook page. People would follow it and like it or whatever. Um, and we kind of started with those guys. The biggest we ever did uh, was we got to the Calgary Stampede. And we were on the main stage as the opening act with the drum and DJ for the first year was 50 Cent and Nelly. And the second year was uh, Iggy Azalea and Snoop Dogg. <laughs> so there's no way I ever would have been on a backstage pass with Snoop Dogg if I was at the Panda. That's funny. And then from there, it just tra- kind of transpired into spending more time in uh, the hospitality world and wanting to ride my bike around Calgary and go do a tasting here or host an event there or, or whatever it was. So I started buying you know more of this old knitted cycling apparel because I could wear a pair of you know chinos or a pair of jeans and, and kind of dress it up a bit. But it wasn't that cotton and it wasn't a dress shirt, so I didn't stink and I didn't uh, you know I didn't sweat. And um, it kind of transpired into you know what I should just build a brand out of this. And so the name kind of existed, but the product was kind of in development. And so one thing led to another, you know, the product and the material and then what part of the cycling world should it be? And uh, all these questions kind of got answered over a couple of years of testing and trying and asking and phoning and emailing and all these things. And it's kind of uh, is going that direction right now. So the bikepacking world intrigues me because part of my goal for sure is, is to kind of focus on cyclists and to bridge that gap between uh, fashion and function. You know, like, how can you show up somewhere, especially, you know, you're riding all day and, and show up into a cafe or, or have a, you know, a dinner at a restaurant, but not smell up the place because you've got your, your Liker on or your synthetics or whatever. And how do you kind of fit in a little bit or, or stop and have that pint at that, you know, at that pub afterwards or whatever it is. And if you're bike packing or you're bike traveling or whatever you're doing, or you're just carrying, you know, traveling with a carry on bag, even you can't afford to bring a lot of stuff but I don't want you to miss out on the culture. So that was where I kind of started working was how does stuff like that happen? And then the classic bike world with like the Eroica uh, and that world of, you know, the way cyclists used to look back in the day, like sitting in the garage right now, looking at some of, you know, these guys, they all look like, you know, like Fausto Kopi. He's got a collar on his jersey, on his Bianchi jersey back in the day. Like puts on a pair of dress pants and the guy's a model. Like those are my inspirations for this stuff. So, I've tried to learn from some of these old school ways and, and things in the past and kind of adapt with what Marino can offer these days and kind of combine these two worlds together. Um, wow, you fit a lot in there, man. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the coolest note for That was my quick, like, here's my two-minute spiel from beginning to kind of current days. So. Dude, you made my job super easy there. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's that's cool how you're kind of like, taking these uh, timeless fashions and then turning them into uh, it's like the, the whole adage that everything's old, old is new again. Right. And right. Uh, I was looking at your, your, some of your stuff and the styles are, are quite nice, you know, like very classic cool. kind of, uh, you know, Thank still you. kind of tight fitting and just not obnoxious color, you know, no obnoxious colors. And 
you know, just, yeah. just kind of nice. And you know, people who ride bikes know how awesome Marino is. So uh, how does well, that, how does that actually work in terms of, um, like, like designing and fabricating these things. So you, now you say they're, uh, they're, they're made in Italy. Yeah. So what I did is <laughs> you start to realize things really fast. Cause I was never, you know, I didn't grow up sewing stuff or designing. I never worked for a fashion house. Um, but I've always enjoyed, you know, the intricacies of it all. So instead what I get to do is I kind of, I've worked with now there's three different producers in Italy. They produce different parts of the collection for me. And the reason I chose Italy, I guess, primary is, I went around, I used to live in Asia for a while. So it's like, you know what? This probably makes sense if I just went to China or Taiwan. And then you start talking to some people like, well, okay, well, that has a stigma to, attached to it. Like, you know, is there any quality? And you can get quality stuff, but, you know, it's not maybe the first, the first thought if you say it's made in China or it's made in, you know, in Asia. Like, okay. So then when I started looking around like some of this old school wool, uh, all these old jerseys, I'm like, okay, well, what kind of wool? But it wasn't just normal, like scratchy wool. It was merino. So I was like, okay, well, New Zealand makes sense. Everybody knows, you know, New Zealand, Merino, you know, smart wool and all that stuff exists. I'm like, okay. But then, well, where did, like, New Zealand, it's all colony-based. Like, it came from somewhere. So that would have originated where? And then we start looking into Europe. So then I looked into, like, okay, well, who's making stuff in Spain or Italy or France or Germany or, or like, what part of Europe? And Spain and Italy were kind of the two spots. And so what I did was I looked at a few options. Okay, if I want to contact producers in Spain, you know, who, who would respond? And I made the same list in Italy. I made, you know, 25 people on a list. I'm like, well, these guys make clothing. They're in Italy. You know, do you, can you do custom? Um, have you ever worked with Merino? Because nowadays everybody's focused on Lycra this and arrow fitting that. And, you know, it's all, it's such a modern day um, phenomenon as to what the fabric is that people use or desire or are wanting to buy. And so it was kind of a funny question when I'd ask guys, because they're like, well, well, no, of course, we, you know, like we don't make old knitted stuff. And I'll, so then you have to go back on some of these old posters or, you know, photos and be like, okay, so who made, you know, stuff in the seventies, who made stuff in the sixties or in the eighties even. Um, and there was all kind of interesting stuff. Like the story behind Castelli is remarkable. That little scorpion, you know, like, like the, the history that comes with it. There's a whole book I have. And I, you know, I practice reading Italian when I read the book all the time, but you know, how, you know, actual Castelli got it from one guy and then his son comes on board and kind of revamps it all. And just, you know, like each generation was bringing something new and different to the cycling world and to the point where they are today kind of thing. And, you know, the original Castelli wasn't the, the white scorpion with the red circle. It was actually a black scorpion in a yellow circle. And so, you know, going to places like the Eroica and some of these historic events now that are in, uh, you know, actually across Europe, um, it's cool because you get to see the old school jersey and like the way the you know the father Castelli would have made it back in the day, and that's the kind of stuff where I'm like, okay, well, there was a reason, there's style, and there was, you know, like why do they use buttons? And I just had this conversation the other day. Like I've been listening to also your podcast and fashion podcast, and and it's funny because guys want to go into this, you know, what's sustainable, and you know, what does the future look like, and how do I become a minimalist? Cause you know, can I just pay a little bit more, but will it last me longer? And do I need three of those versus just one? And things like these old school jerseys, like the polo tops I have, they're designed after the 1930 cycling jerseys. It's a collar top on the back of the collar. There's a little button. Um, you know, there's pockets that have a little flap over the back, but I kind of joke. It's kind of like a modern day mullet, you know, it's already <laughs> in the front, you know, 
from the front you look all business, but in the back you're all function kind of thing because you got the pockets and you got the gear, so it kind of works. Um, but you walk into a place and nobody's like, oh, that guy must have rode his bike and kind of thing. Yeah, I can tell from here. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of my goal right now is how many more things can I learn? And, and that world, oh, man, Europe is just so rich in that culture um, that every time I go over and the more guys I meet and you talk to them online and you share stories and even the bike restoration world, like the steel vintage guys are awesome. But there's guys now around the world that I've met that are doing the same kind of stuff. They're bringing back these old steel bikes and kind of refurbishing them more. Like I've got this little Acola right now I'm working on. It's from about the 60s. And, but I'm going to turn it into like my adventure bike. I can fit 38 C uh, tires on it. Uh, I've got like a three uh, chain ring campy groups that I'm going to put on. And I'm going to make it into probably a 10 speed. All from this old classic steel bike. So this whole world of like, just because it's old, it doesn't mean it's bad or it's garbage. A lot of the old stuff was designed to like outlast anything modern day nowadays. So yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree with you there for sure. So that's kind of my premise is, you know, I'm not designing clothing and working with these producers to try to make sure everybody on earth has one, you know, for the guys that it makes sense to, yeah, maybe, you know, the price is pretty competitive to what's out there, but all I want is, you know, add a little bit of style back into the cycling world. Like when I look at these guys standing on a podium wearing a baseball cap, there's a cycling cap and there's a baseball cap. I don't know. Unless you give these guys a ball glove, <laughs> hey, I wear a I flat brim like- cap when I bike pack. It's just, it's all I have, man. I, I, I haven't gone to the cycling cap thing yet. Maybe you'll have to help I'll, me out with that. I'll, I'll set you up with one for sure, <laughs> just, just because. But for me, there's there's that richness of history and cycling that exists. And there's these stories. And there's, you know, like the Stradivianchi and stuff that they're bringing back and Perry Roubaix and Perry Nice and all these, you know, like the Belgium races and stuff. And watching what the new guys are doing with the new bikes, but all these old roads. And that's why some of these classic events are so cool um, because if you take an old bike and ride the old routes um, and do it the way they did it, your appreciation for what those guys could do, it's mind-blowing. Like, it's the most eye-opening stuff sometimes. Yeah, it's going to hurt, and yeah, it's not the easiest, but, man, does that glass of wine or that beer at the end, like, taste amazing? And you put in the grunt work kind of thing, and, but it, what it does with the old bikes is it also slows things down which is kind of, I guess, similar like on your podcast, you talk about the bike packing where you kind of, you know, you're not setting a personal best all the time. You know, you're sometimes just out there just for the, you know, just for the ride. Yeah, for sure. And that's what these old bikes, they, they kind of force you to do that, which is kind of the cool part of it sometimes. So I was looking at that video just before we started chatting on, uh, I think it was on your <laughs> Facebook of that, that old race and the one guy's on the Velocipede and the other guys are on kind of the normal <laughs> Um, yep. That was so awesome. Those bikes are so wicked. Like, oh. I love to get my hands on one of those. They don't look very comfortable for a long ride. <laughs> They're so short in the top tube. But uh, <laughs> well, yeah, and everything's just raw, like just raw steel. And yeah, it's just, it's awesome. I love that. Well, what I've come to realize riding these old bikes. So now with like the Whistler Grand Fondo, um, a couple of years ago, we kind of had a conversation. I said, hey, they noticed that I was going to the Eroica, which was kind of a cool thing over in North America. And you say, hey, well, what about another category? Like, how else can we get more people to come and ride? And I was like, yeah, let's open up a classics category. You know, like, more so, not even, like, sure, showcase the old school bikes, but more so open the door to people that just because you don't have the newest, coolest, most modern bike that's seen on, you know, every Velo News or, or cycling magazine, you know, front cover these days, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy cycling. 
like buy a cheap one, buy an old one, refix one in your garage, whatever. You don't need to, and, you know, this is kind of a, not, I'm not knocking the guys in the bike world because, you know, the new stuff is super cool. But if you want to repurpose it, you don't have a bunch of money to spend. It should limit you to not being enjoying, you know, able to enjoy a bike ride. And yeah, so that's where, and sometimes there's a stigma, like, you know, um, especially de- depending on the demographic, like I lived, I've lived in Whistler for, well, I lived there for a really long time. And it's just like, <laughs> you know, it's a, it, there, there's a scene there, right? For sure. And, uh, that, that kind of drives people to kind of probably overspend and buy bikes that are way too much, way more bike than they actually need. And, and, you know, oh, I, th- yeah. I think the industry really relies on that and, and I'm a bit, I'm a huge fan for, uh, of new technology. I'm not yeah. a huge carbon fiber fan. I'm really not <laughs> from a sustainable point of view. And I've been, sure. I've been riding steel bikes for, well, at least a decade. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, you know, modern steel bikes like Chromag and, and, yeah. uh, yeah. And, um, Absolutely. and, uh, I, uh, this year I bought an aluminum fat bike and the ride between a steel bike or a steel fat bike and an aluminum bike is so different and i tell people that and they don't believe me they're like how come on you can't tell i'm like dude you can totally tell the difference between a steel and aluminum bike aluminum's just so so punishing (laughs) it's so punishing man for sure and uh so i'm a i'm a huge fan of steel bikes anyway but i often wonder if some of those older steel bikes could actually take the punishment you know of uh what do you think? Why I, do you ride them? You're like, what do you, can, yeah. they, can they stand up to the test of modern cycling? Oh, without question. The cool thing is, is that you can put wider tires. Like I, this auto I had was from the sixties and, uh, the Lignano I've got that I've been riding for some of these events was from the seventies. Now I've been riding the original gearing and it's the gearing that throws it off because the very first year I was at the Eroica, uh, in Tuscany there in Gaioli, I, uh, I met up with Alex Dita. And Alex Race, most people know, like, you know, 7-Eleven, uh, first North American to wear the yellow jersey and all that stuff, which is super cool. And so when you get to meet a guy, and you're like, hey, yeah, this is that guy. Awesome. And, you know, we'd follow each other on Twitter or whatever at the time and kind of made the connection. Then I saw him on his 7-Eleven bike because that's what he wrote um, for the Eroica. And he's out there and he said, yeah, you know what? All I did was I switched up the gears. And I- I'm old. I don't want to push those big, heavy gears anymore kind of thing, and uh, which is not a bad thing. But he still rode the same bike and he went through the same races and, you know, he got to sit back and enjoy a little bit more, but that's the biggest difference these days. Like those old bikes, it's funny because if you want to go faster and you want the aerodynamics, you want to be in this, you know, aero position, then all you got to do is loosen that stem, drop it right down, slam it. And there you've got your aero position. Yeah. You're on a long day where you're going to be climbing some hills and it's kind of more touring. Hey, raise it up a, a centimeter or two. That's it. And you've got a different bike, <clears throat> you know. So I think without a doubt, these old bikes, like I, I, I did one to a Bianchi and I've got this Atala now, which I'm basically just taking the frame and everything else on is more modern componentry. So the shifting, the brakes, the wheels, even the gearing and stuff like that. But um, I've been testing out that Lignano and uh, this Atala and there's been a few. I've got a Botecchi right now. I just threw some knobby uh, 32C uh, tires on it as my cross bike or my gravel bike or my dirty riding bike. Um, and yeah, you got to push a little harder going up the hills. Cause I just still have the original, you know, six speed little block cassette that's on the back which yeah, you're going to work for. But at the end of the day, yeah, I could put a different cassette or a little, you know, freewheel on there if I wanted to and spin something easier. But these things, you know, you beat the heck out of them all you want. You wash them, you clean them, oil them back up and they're ready to go again. You know, throw the wheels in a truing stand. 
and what repack the bearings, I guess, and, and you're set to go. Like it's it's comical, but this restoration process is kind of cool because what we're starting to see and what we had last year, like Merck's had his down in Penticton here. We had a classics category. We had some bikes out for that. The Whistler guys actually put on a bike show. So we had 35 bikes this year at a bike show. And it was one of the highlights of the highlights of the little expo we were at because people were like, wow, that's cool. You could actually ride that. And sure enough, these bikes were all actually ridden up the hill the next day from Vancouver up to Whistler. Awesome. And so like we were, I had a deal like GCN was there. Uh, Jeremy Powers and uh, Simon uh, Richardson were there and they were supposed to ride the classic bikes. Uh, that was the deal. But they chickened out. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm going to call vote on that right now because uh, you guys are, uh, hey, you guys are soft. You guys are soft. <laughs> <laughs> hey, see if you can qualify for that world championship on the old bike. Then that's impressive. Sure, we know you guys can do it on the new bikes. That's a given. But can you do it on the old bikes? Can you put in that power? Can you learn how that bike works? <laughs> Yeah, it would, oh, it would so, be a huge adjustment when you go from from. A, it would be like you know you you get out of your Tesla and you jump into a. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, not not uh, to discredit yeah. those bikes that you're building, but uh, no, for yeah, sure. the fact that they're free pack. Like, do you have a hard time finding uh, parts for these bikes? It depends where you look. Now with these connections in Europe, and because I lived in Mexico for five winters, I've got guys down there. Like, there's entire clubs and groups, and that are around. You know, Mexico is funny because it's actually very close, but it's very European compared to like Canada, US. Uh, like there are these guys that have these, the classic bike club of Guadalajara. And, you know, they have these little shops and they just, they find them, they repack them, they bring them back to life. And because more people are riding these bikes for their everyday commute or whatever it is, uh, they have parts, they have tires, like 28 inch tires, 27 inch tires, the old school ones, I can get in Mexico. I can make two calls to two different guys and I can decide if I want black, do I want white wall, do I want the natural skin color tires? And they're amazing. Are these, are, are they, are they new product? Are they being fabricated now or are they? Yeah. Like, really? Yeah. That's cool, man. So they have these molds that they can, they can mold up these old school tires. Because they're, they're just duplicating bikes. Like they're like, it's like in the Indian stuff you come across where it's almost like from the war times where they're still producing like old motorbikes, but the factory is there. The parts are there. Guys are still using them. So they're like, well, we're still in business. Yeah. Oh, that's you know, like, cool. So in Mexico, like I've got this, uh, a couple of these bikes, these double top tubes right now. Yeah. Yeah. I um, saw that one. It looks so good. It looks really yeah. nice. But in, so you go to Mexico city, every guy that has a shop and they're delivering all the delivery guys, like the butchers, the bakers, the, the groceries, uh, they have basically a bike that looks identical to that. There's a milk crate on the back or two milk crates and they ride these things around their rubber boots and their aprons, drop stuff off. And when they get somewhere, they don't have a kickstand. They actually stand the whole bike on end. So the wheels are standing up in the air uh, and that's their parking. Oh, because they lean it back on top of the crates? Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> it's nuts. But I found a spot in Mexico City. Um, it's right next to, there's a little, it's a very European little indoor market and we're walking around, drinking some wine, eating some prosciutto, and kind of like, wow, this feels like Europe. This is awesome. And around the corner, there's a guy that is actually fabricating these exact bikes. So you can go there, and the guy will actually say, okay, here's the frame. What color do you want? Um, do you want? Here's two handlebar setups. Here's the wheels. Which you want? Modern brakes or old school brakes? Da, 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 da. And you kind of customize this old bike and bring it back to life. Yeah, that's cool. So. Yeah, I don't. It's just there's so many cool things these days. Like I got buddies that are uh, out in um, in 
uh, around Venice right now in Veneto uh, called the Cycle Project. And what these guys do is they take tires and repurpose them into uh, you know belts or you know little keychains or wallets or whatever it is. But they made an entire business. Like I'm looking at one right now. They had a deal with I think it was like Michelin or somebody. Um, they're like, okay, all these used tires, boom, we can all we can use these for something, and then they sell them as a product. Yeah. So there's a lot of this upcycling stuff or reusing or recycling um, or repurposing that uh, can get used, which is kind of a cool thing that the bike world, you know, being as green and environmentally friendly as possible. It's kind of a, an interesting game. Yeah, it's cool. And in a, a, day, a day and age where, you know, people are, are buying new bikes every year, right? And yeah. you, you think about that. <laughs> I was thinking about this a little bit today. Um, there was a post, someone was asking what they thought about uh, e-bikes. They put it out there on the bike yeah. Canada forum and actually, yeah, it got a little nasty in there. Like people <laughs> were being a little, and you know, I, I have mixed feelings about, about e-bikes, but my, yeah. my, my angle on the whole thing, uh, I think, I think they have their place. Um, but, uh, the bike in and of itself is such a noble, efficient machine. It's like, you know, unless, unless you're injured yeah. or, or, you know, you have difficulty riding a bike and my friend Katrina, she, you know, she rides e-bikes and she struggled with that a lot, but she has a, a this crazy leg injury. And I've talked about her yeah. a number of times on the podcast. Yeah, for I'm, sure. I'm yeah, so yeah. proud of her for taking the step to, cause you know, it was, yeah. a, it was a big stigma for her cause she's an, an athlete. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, um, why do we have to put motors and batteries and everything nowadays, you know? And then, well, and then you have, you know, your group who's going in and kind of, you know, breathing, <laughs> breathing life into these, into these old steeds that, that still rip. Right. I mean, yeah, you know, the, the geometries might be a little funky or whatever, but they're, but you can still repurpose them and make them work. And uh, yeah, oh, it's yeah. kind of refreshing actually to, to hear that. Well, the, the, the e-bike world I always think is interesting. Um, it's, it's cool. It, you know, it's progress, the big bike brands, you know, you got to keep making your product. You got to keep moving forward. You know, what's next in you. And eventually like, you know, where's it going to go kind of thing. And so the e-bike, yeah, it makes sense. Cause back in the day, even when I sold bikes, you know, they were putting these, uh, adaptation parts, you know, okay. They got to rebuild the hub, um, these bionics units and okay. Do you want it with turbo or not? Or like they were kind of making at least, okay, take your current bike. We can add it on. But, um, with these e-bikes now, you know, they already come stock. The, the thing I'm curious um, is knowing where these old steel bikes that I, you know, we refurbish, we remake, we ride, we enjoy. Um, where, what is the lifespan of an e-bike? Where is it going to be in five, 10, 15 years? Yeah. And that's kind of one of my points. I, I didn't really, I didn't really finish my thought. I kind of got off track, which I do all the time, <laughs> but, but one, you know, my main, you know, my main concern or, or food for thought I wanted people to think about was just the environmental impact of uh, a full carbon bike with uh, a lithium ion battery inside it. And then, you know, wire, whether it be aluminum or copper wire, and then more plastic to wrap the wire. And, and, you know, carbon isn't sustainable and the amount of energy it takes to actually pump out a carbon fiber frame is immense. And then now you're adding another carbon footprint to that by, you know, mining in, in developing countries and pulling all the lithium out of the ground and you know, oh, yeah. making a battery that, you know, may last five years or maybe longer. And then, you know, is that person just going to replace them? Is the bike just going to end up in the garbage? Are they going to take the right steps to say recycle or, or refurbish that battery? That I think that's more my, my concern. 
And you know, yeah. that goes for electric cars are, are fucking amazing. Like there's no denying that they're amazing, right. but you're, you're, to me, it's a little <laughs> bit of an offset. It's like, okay, yeah, we're not burning gas anymore and we're not fracking for, 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 for sure. fossil fuels anymore. But now instead of fracking, we're digging massive pits in the ground and we're pulling <laughs> minerals out of the ground to build batteries yep. in these factories and with toxic materials. And now you've got this amazing spaceship on wheels, right? Yeah. Um, that um, needs to plug into the grid. Now you're taxing the grid. You can have, say, 100,000 people in, in a city with electric cars on a grid right. that's like 50 years old, right? So yeah. there's you know, the, the technology is fantastic and I, I appreciate it, but it is still an offset. It's you're just offsetting. You're not really improving. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably gonna get a lot of shit for that, for what I just said, but well, I, you know I what, love though, electric but, cars. Yeah. I think it's but great. the thing is, can you take the whole process into the picture? If you're just trying to look at the finish line product and you don't take it into account what it takes to make that, you know, it's the same with the clothing world right now, like fast fashion. Um, or, you know, people with the vintage world or, you know, like vintage stores and secondhand repurposed stuff are popping up left and right, whether it's for money or for style or, and there's some amazing, environment. there's amazing pieces out there in vintage stores too, right? Like, oh yeah. yeah. Well, there's, there's a project I'll share with you in the future, but there's something I'm working on right now. Um, as a part of the collection, it'll be like a very small little sliver, but I want to test out and it has to do with things from the past and things from the future. And can these two worlds can you kind of learn, but also can you kind of reuse and repurpose and and kind of keep the life of something going? Like I was just out with this guy, Roger, right now, and we were just talking on, you know, like these old knitted jerseys. We both had knitted jerseys on, and we both picked out spots where, you know, oh, there's a darn spot kind of thing. Like, oh, you had a hole, you had a crash, and it's kind of like a wound or a scar, but it has a story to it. Yeah. And you fix it up, and you patch it, and you bring it back to life, and, and you keep wearing it. Yeah. And instead of like, oh, uh, well, there's a hole. Or, oh, the zipper's broken. I, I guess it's garbage. Okay, fine. I need something new. Like versus, can you fix it? Or and, you know, and that's part of the thing. I guess the attraction with working with the Italians was, you know, you go to that country and, sure, everything in my collection is Italian fitted, but in Italy or in a lot of Europe, what they do is you go into a tailor. Everybody's a tailor, and you go in and nothing is, should fit you perfectly off the rack, but that doesn't matter. And everybody's body type is different, even over there. The difference is people are just comfortable with it. And they say, okay, you know what? I got a belly. I got big shoulders. I got a big neck. I got big arms. I got whatever. Small this, big whatever. It doesn't matter. But they go in. The tailor fits, adjusts, modifies, and every, everybody looks well-dressed. Hmm. And so that's part of the thing with the clothing line is, you know, can you adapt a little bit and kind of turn this into something a little bit more style-oriented versus just off the rack and it's supposed to fit you perfectly kind of thing. Yeah. I guess that's that whole North American thing, right? Like, um, Europe does a lot of things differently, you know? Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> you know, we, we've got our old navies and our gaps and, and, uh, it's true. It's, it's, you know, I'm no, I'm no, I'm a dirtbag dude. Like I'm a total dirtbag <laughs> and it's, it's not like, you know, I don't even own a suit or a tie yeah. just, just to be clear. And, For um, sure. and it's like, you know, you know, I, it, it's not on my radar to go, to a really nice clothing store and buy a really nice collared shirt that that might cost 210 bucks, but I can appreciate yeah. it because it, it'll be a well-made garment that you can, you know, you take care of it. And, but I'm just like a t-shirt and jeans guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and see that's, and that's exactly, see that's the world where I'm playing with right now is 
how do I get a guy like you, like even our base layers? Like I, there's a short sleeve and a low sleeve base layer. Oh, I know. Now, you could have a Mybach 40 dirt bag line and it could be uh, for sure. <laughs> plaid. Oh, <hey>. and, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that in the future because I'm, I'm looking for different collaboration projects all the time. There's always teams and events and clubs. I'm like, hey, let's come up with something. Let's make it cool and specific and let's co-brand it. Done. Um, but like, and that's the beauty with the Merino. But with this base layer, I've got, I can wear it out socially um, as a fitted top, long sleeve or short sleeve, put on a pair of jeans on or chinos or whatever you want to wear. It doesn't matter, shorts in the summertime, and I can wear it out. You know, go to the pub, go for, with, you know, meet friends for dinner. It doesn't matter. Go to the fa- with the family. Uh, but on the bike, I can also use it as my base layer. Now, I didn't want to design something the same as everybody else where you put this logo square on your neck so that way when you unzip your jersey, oh, boom, there's your product shot of your base layer kind of thing. Because nobody wears their base layer out in public, ever. <laughs> yeah. It's like going out in your underwear. Are you crazy? Well, I, exactly. <laughs> Whereas this one, this is a couple of years ago, but my buddy Graham, um, we were up at Whistler uh, for the Grand Fondo, and he said, hey, well, we're going to stay the night in Whistler after Grand Fondo, uh, you know, bring a bag, and then we'll ride back to Vancouver the next day. I said, okay, cool. So what I wore was on the bike, I had my shorts, uh, my base layer and my classic old school knitted jersey, cycling cap, helmet, shoes, socks, done. And then all I had was I have a little leather musette. So I put in my little leather musette, uh, toothbrush, deodorant, um, a sweater, jeans, and a different pair of shoes. And he's like, what? That's, that's all you're bringing? I'm like, yeah, man, we're going for a night. He's like, yeah, but we got like this fancy like five course dinner and we got to go socialize and like we're going to meet some people. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fine. I'll wear, my, I'll wear my underwear. It's all good. <laughs> well, and so we rode and we get there and, you know, whatever. It was great. It was a big ride, all that stuff. The only thing was my base there was a little bit salty after the ride. So we went back to the hotel room. I threw it in the sink really quick. We opened a bottle of Prosecco. Uh, I rinsed it in the sink and just dried it over a chair. By the time we both had a glass of Prosecco shower change, it was dry. I put it on, put on the sweater, put on, changed my other shoes, and boom, we go for dinner. Not one person the entire night said, wow, do you stink? Did you wear that on your bike? Or, hey, is that your base layer you're wearing right now? <laughs> like, that's, it, that's it wasn't cool. even a thought. Yeah. And so then the next day, I pack all this back into this little musette, throw it back over my shoulder, and we ride back. It said, he's got a whole other kit. He had to put his clothes for the night. He had a whole backpack. He had to ride the 100 and whatever K back it was, 120 K back to Vancouver with. So it's that comical game of like, how can you travel late but not miss out on stuff? Like culturally, you travel somewhere, you you want to go to a museum or go for a nice glass of wine or, or walk around and not be like, oh, well, you know, I, I got to shower, I got to do this, or I got to put this away, or I, I, you know, I, I don't want to stink up the place kind of thing. Well, you know, so there, that's how, there is something there that kind of, uh, I think a lot of bike packers can relate to. And it's just, you know, the, the idea of um, multi-use, you know, being able yeah. to, to, you know, because... Yeah, you, you, some people will carry an extra extra change of clothes. And again, you know, my dirt bag, I don't really care. And, <laughs> and you know, that's kind of what I like about, because we talked a little bit online. Um, I wear like a button-down shirt. I've been yeah. kind of dealing with kind of, kind of switching over, you know, from a, sure. from a tight jersey to, and what I like about the button-down is when you're just, you know, ripping on the gravel and it's super hot, you can just undo a couple buttons. And, and then the thing just acts like an air conditioner. It, it's, it, it was super <laughs> comfortable, but man, is it, yeah, it's, it was synthetic and it stunk like crazy. But well, um, and, yeah. And that's the part right there. Like 
the thing with the stink is with merino, there's a, a natural oil that occurs. And it's called lanolin. And with that oil, it's an antibacterial. And so I've tested it, and it's a really funny test. And I've made guys try it. I'm like, tell you what, buy this, take it home, wear it. See how many times you can wear it before your wife or girlfriend or somebody <laughs> says it stinks. And usually, you can get away with up to five, at least five wears um, before you might start to smell. I've got up to about seven or eight before. So if you have like proper normal hygiene, you clean your shower, you do all that stuff. Um, when we get into the shorts and bibs and stuff like that, you know, we usually suggest wash the chamois at least after the right kind of hygiene. That makes a little bit more sense. But um, but other than that, so I kind of laugh. It's, if you're lazy, you don't like doing laundry, <laughs> perfect. I got something for you. If you care about the environment because you don't want to be washing stuff so many times uh, and, you know, then I also have something for you. Boom, same product. Still Merino. Not going to have to worry about washing it five times. Um, and then, again, if, you're, if you don't like the smell factor, because almost everybody has a jersey or a top or a sweater or something that's kind of sitting in their collection, and they like it, but they know if they go for a ride, they're going to be that smelly guy that somebody's going to say, or they're just like, I don't want to sit behind that guy, or uh, did you shower, or what is that? Like, Yeah, you know, with, with, the right. synth- with the synthetics, I find, all you have to do is warm them up a little bit. So you, you, <laughs> could, have a, you could have a clean top, and you could take it out, and it could smell, you know, fresh and clean and as yep. soon as you put it on your body and your body just kind of warms up a little <laughs> bit and you don't even have to sweat i find they stink i i have a, i have a merino top um uh, a base layer and i yep. i love it and it's amazing and yeah i can i can you can wear those things for days and you know even well, you might take them off and they may even have a bit of a of a stink yeah just initially but we just sure. leave them out and then they, you just, you know, they dry if you've, you know, kind of wet it out or whatever and, and you let them yeah. dry. They, yeah, it's a miracle fabric. It's, I, I love Merino. Although well, the, I, I do the, find I wet them out a little faster than I would um, with uh, some, some synthetics. Uh-huh. Well, the thing I always find too now, so, okay, we played the bacteria, the, the smell game. <laughs> uh, now, the other thing though is the actual technical properties of it. So if you think back far enough, you know, historically, guys used to ride bikes. They made a ride to the top of a mountain, um, and guys would be sticking newspapers. Like I still have all these guys. Well, most of these events, you know, these grand tour stuff, they started with the newspaper. So you have your newspaper, you stick it in your pocket or whatever. Uh, but when you get to the top or you go to descend, or if you ever start to rain, you crunkle it all up and actually put it underneath your jersey, creating a little bit of air mm. and space between you and your jersey. I did that once in Italy on a trip, and it works. Yeah. And then for the Whistler Fondo. You know, that whisper funnel, you get soaked in it almost every time. You hit through the mountains. So now you're you're climbing, you're getting colder, and you're wet. So there was, I don't know, two, three years ago, pneumonia sets in. Like, guys were, like, shivering, and which is very dangerous on the bike because they want to persist, but they can't really handle their bike. With the Merino stuff, I wore the same thing. I wore my bibs, my base layer, um, my long sleeve, though, and my jersey. So, yeah, we all get wet, but the thing with all the synthetic, like whatever your rain jacket of choice is, either it keeps all the water out, which then means you'll probably sweat from the inside and still be wet, or it still doesn't seal you off and you're still going to get wet with your rain jacket. What yeah. happens with the synthetic, though, is you can't dry out. With the merino, I get wet, fine, but because it also has an insulation, insulating property, um, my body heat will kind of keep me, a, kind of like a dry suit. 
uh, or like a wetsuit concept, right? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be kind of chilled, but never like so cold. But then once it stops raining, because it's porous, the wind will actually dry out the water, and I'll be able to warm back up and dry out again, which means I can actually reset. Yeah. And so on this event, it rained twice, but there was about a 45 minute window where it didn't rain. So I could actually dry out. Nobody else on the bike could, unless you got off, either wrung out your your clothing or your socks or whatever, or you stopped and changed clothes. So nobody did. So I basically had a reset. So when it rained again, I was actually kind of back to square one. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to get a bit of a chill. It's a bit wet, but I wasn't that bad. But everybody else just kind of compiled on from their previous time earlier in the ride where they were already soaking wet. So it's crazy how that stuff works. You know, like it because it's porous, it creates create ventilation. Air goes right through you and stuff. But yet because it's it is a wool, it can actually keep some heat in and keep you, you know, still warm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great fabric for sure. And I think a lot of outdoor people would <clears throat> excuse me, agree with you. Like it, it tends to be it it, it 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 seems that generally anything that's a natural product you know, down versus synthetic. I think, I think they yeah. each, they each have their, their merits. Sure. Um, but yeah, it would always seem that the natural product seems to just perform just a little bit better, you know, than, than the synthetic ones. Yeah. Well, and we were even talking today, like, you know, we talked about the like, e-bikes or, or carbon bikes and stuff. And what does that future look like for this product? Clothing is one of those products right now that fills up landfills more than oh, almost for anything sure. else. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so going forward, it is a focus for sure is, you know, can I use, is there a wooden button I can use, you know, with thread and wool and, you know, what are the gives and the takes out of it kind of thing? Like how close to this 100% recyclable um, product can you kind of produce, but still will it have enough, I guess, function or desire or like, you know, a cyclist desire to meet the needs of, you know, will it sag or not, or will it hold its shape? Because that was kind of a downfall of some of the old stuff was, you put something in the back pocket and after a year of riding, you've kind of, you've got like a skirt to wear now when you go out. So, yeah. And, um, so when these, when you, um, I guess order these products or you kind of work with the, with the, um, the, I guess it's a textile, like a mill basically in Italy yeah, that, that puts this stuff for together sure. for you, um, yeah. without obviously giving numbers away, like what, <laughs> what, what's the, cause your, your stuff isn't that outrageous for Merino like the cost yeah. of it. I was, you know, looking around. So like, yeah. what would, what would be, would it be like uh double uh, the amount uh, to build something in Italy versus China? You know what I'm trying to say? It's like, you, you know, like is it 30, 30% more to build something in Italy than it, it is ordering it out of China? Yeah. Yeah. It's probably about, by the time it's all said and done, there's probably a, a 20 to 30% difference in price. Um, but what I came to and what I wanted once I realized it was, with the Italians, what you gain and what when I work with them is that there is a history and a culture and an understanding that already exists. Uh, there's also certain designs that they already have because the guys I work with have been doing it for a while. Right. So, and because of these classic events and a lot of these guys, they bring out their nostalgic, their old school, like back in the day when we made stuff for whoever it was. Um, like the old Giro Italia jerseys, well, those were knitted back in the day. And if you head up to the Madonna Gisalo in, in uh, Lombardia up in the north, and you can actually go and see at the museum, you know, the original pink jerseys, um, the Maglia Rosas, and you can see what how they progressed through time. And, you know, Castelli was one of those guys where, hey, what material can we start to change 
well, we can add more advertising if we can print on this material. And, oh, it can be tighter. Okay, well, that's aerodynamics. There's an advantage. And so between advertising and this whole aero effect, you know, that's where that synthetic world came from mm. um, in the cycling world, which was really interesting because, you know, <laughs> I would rather work with guys that have this understanding uh, with the Italians. And it, the other thing I love is that the Italians love detail. And that was my attraction too, because I love to sit there and pick up part of a piece of anything like a bicycle or whatever it is right down to the, the minute, like with the clothing. Okay. Is it the zipper? How it's cut the, the shape of the, you know, What's on the button actually? Like, is it in the shape of it? How many holes are on it? Um, like, how does it exactly fit? Because if you make a difference of a centimeter, it can make a big difference on a fit of a shirt mm. kind of thing. So you're like, okay. And so working with the Italians, there is that commonality already. Like, that already exists because there's history and that's what they do. They don't just do it. It's not just a job. It's not just, we're in a factory, we're producing this many. You got to hit these minimums. Like, you want like, if you're not producing at least 300 pieces, we don't want to talk to you, which you get from some guys that produce right. big stuff, especially around Asia. So you feel and that, so, and, and you feel that the, um, um, well, it's just more pride in the product. For sure. There, there is that artisanal side of it. And there's that, you know, like we do it and we love it and we ride it and we don't just walk away from it at the end of the day. And so the guys I work with and work around and you have come to know over the years, uh, even in the industry, like different guys with different companies, there's that commonality where they're like, like the devil's in the details essentially. Right. Yeah. And you sit there and you're like, okay, yeah. Like why, what makes this, this price? What makes that, that price kind of thing? Like, you know, like what makes a Pinarello the price versus, I don't know, like Mex bike or something like there's both bicycles, but you know, they're carbon fiber. You put them side by side, but why, why is Pinarello this price? And why is Mech have this at this price hmm. kind of thing or, or whatever brand you want to choose or go to the, you know, go to a department store even You'd be like, okay, well there's, you know, they're mountain bikes. Sure. <laughs> But there's big differences. And it's those little things that, you know, people appreciate. And if you're going to buy for something for, you know, a period of time that you want to keep it for, then it kind of makes sense that maybe buy a little better quality, spend a little extra, and it should last a little bit longer. For sure. Why do you think there's not um, similar textile mills in North America or Canada that you could call on to make these garments? Um, I think part of it's historical. Like some of the machines and some of just the understanding with the materials, um, like some of the guys I work with, they still have, like if I need a chain stitch done on a jersey, like, and the chain stitching is basically, let's say, the letters that are made. And what happens is the way it's sewn, uh, the letters on the jersey actually stretch with you as you ride. They're not just a straight embroidery. Oh, I understand. And you, yeah. And so, like, these guys have machines like that. Oh, so when I say, hey, can you uh, can you do it like this? They're like, well, yeah, of course. You're like, what are you? <laughs> what course. are you thinking? Why are you asking me this? <laughs> yeah, like like that's a stupid question. <laughs> Whereas over here, I can ask a hundred people that might make clothing of any kind, and they're like, oh wow, it's so old. Like, I met one lady one time that honestly the only reason she had a machine that could do it was because she was doing it from the seventies still. Right. But those machines don't exist, and that concept, there isn't the same historical background. Mm -hmm. Like there aren't three generations of people making something in Canada. Right. Or not large amounts of them, I guess, I, more than anything else. Like, yeah, just a deeper, you, deeper, older culture. Right. And, and that's part of it, I guess, for me, is that there is that, like, like even in the U.S. and stuff, there's guys making some cool stuff without, you know, without question. But 
you go onto some of their websites, and then the question is, you have to find out, are they actually making it there, or are they just the house that says, hey, you give me the design, and I'm the middleman, and I've got a factory in China or somewhere else, that, or you know, whatever country, I don't care, India, Pakistan, whatever, Taiwan, um, but now that's where I'm going to go get it made. Then I'm going to bring it back here, and I'm going to sew on this little thing. And I can tell you that because when I was trying to figure out who I wanted to work with and start the design product, I tested probably 10 companies out. Like I said, I went to New Zealand. I, there was guys in the U.S. There was guys in Spain. Um, and there was guys in Italy. And the best quality for the price and, and the understanding came out of Italy. Right. And, and that was why I guess I went that direction because now plus I can use it as an excuse why, you know, every year I have to try to get to Italy for a work trip um, <laughs> and uh, go and ride bikes and drink wine and, and go and check out some of the production of stuff and, you know, shake some hands again and, and, you know, okay, here's what I'm looking on. Here's what I'm designing. What do you guys think? And the cool thing is because, because these guys are firsthand knowledge and, and they're producing stuff for the pros and they, they've been doing it for years and we can kind of go back in time like, well, here's why we changed this or you should try this or what if we add this here instead of this? And then they'll tell me a reason. But, but there's already experience and knowledge. And so that's why it's really fun to work with them because I'll take stuff that's already designed. I'm like, okay, well, if we change these five things, this should make it either more comfortable or more durable or more, more something. And they're like, okay, yeah, we never thought of that. Or like, oh, okay, we never thought of doing this to this. Sure, we can add this there. And so that's why I guess my attraction to a place like that versus out here um, – it's kind of uh, it doesn't it doesn't exist to the same degree. Yeah, I understand. Um, so yeah, I guess yeah, that's why my attraction. Like, if we could say, I guess if I had to choose somebody in Canada, it'd probably have to be around Montreal. Would probably be where I would start to look for somebody that had enough history and understanding with kind of those European roots. Or I'd have to go to like the the east coast of, of the U.S. somewhere, where there was some you know fashion in the boats, and that's where people arrived from Europe, kind of thing. And there probably is stuff around there, but just a matter of, you know, what exists. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, um, I would encourage people to go. I'm, I'm sure people know Spandex Panda, but just go check out the site and check out their products. But I want to switch gears for a moment. For uh, sure. We've learned a lot about Spandex Panda, and I think that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and, thank um, you. Yeah, no, yeah, it's great. And, and I like the, you know, I like your principles and and kind of the what your vision and what you're going for and but tell me tell me more about tell me more about you like what drives you is is uh you know obviously cycling has been a passion <laughs> for you for for a really long time like tell, tell me a bit about that yeah well honestly the bike is is part of the freedom of an adventure i guess it's that way to escape like i grew up on a farm in alberta and thinking about it now like i had a canadian tire bike um, when I grew up and I didn't know anything about bikes, my parents didn't, they just like, Hey, here's a bike. Yeah. Go and ride it. And we lived on a farm. So to me, a mile by two miles by one mile by two miles was my time trial loop. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's like, it was gravel roads. There's one section where there's a little bit of pavement and that's all I did. Like it was one of those things where I played all kinds of sports. We were outdoors. I had, we had animals, horses and cows and everything on the farm growing up, but to go and hop on a bike, you're like, okay, I'm going to try and beat my best time right now. Like, and I put on my little watch and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go around and start it at the gate and go around and then, okay, I'm racing. I'm almost there. Okay. Yeah. Not today. Or, Oh, maybe today I'll get it. Kind of thing. And I just started drawing them down and I've had a chance to travel and live around the world a whole bunch. And I've been fortunate and kind of designed my life around that because, uh, I guess 
traveling, you get to learn a lot if you want to. Uh, so I've tried to immerse myself in cultures and, and what kind of like, it's really funny because the more I've traveled, the more I've realized that there's a lot of similarities around the world. People still have to eat. They have to sleep somewhere. They have to, you know, um, transport themselves around. There's some form of entertainment. Like all these things are commonalities. Um, it's just a matter of everybody's got their own little spinoffs on it, you know, for whatever reason. And so um, the bicycle was one of those things that no matter where I ever went, you can usually find a bike. It might not be the nicest, shiniest or whatever, but it was a way to, to explore and faster than walking and, uh, and kind of a cool way because traveling around, you go, you walk on a bike and you find nowadays it's way easier with the internet, but you know, you go to a bike shop like, Oh yeah, we're doing a group ride here. Here's a bike kid. Come for a ride. Like, awesome. Cool. Um, like I started out around the surfing world. Uh, and I, that was my, my interest grew up on the prairies, had a trip to San Diego when I was in university, uh, spring break, then went to Sayulita in Mexico the year after. I'm like, yeah, this surfing thing is cool. And so I spent years trying to, you know, I bought a house in Bali, was shaping surfboards. And I'm like, you know what? If I put in more time uh, in five years from now, where else could I be in the action sports world kind of thing? And cycling kind of was that, that opportunity because I grew up around bikes and we mountain biked through university and um, my cousin in Edmonton, actually, Peter was the guy that got me into road bikes. Like, I still remember my first little Da Vinci. For what I paid for, nowadays, you could buy a full carbon bike with easy 105 components. Um, but it was those little things. I'm like, okay, there's there's this camaraderie. And it didn't matter what country a guy ever went to, whether you spoke the language or not. Like, my buddy uh, Alessandro lives um, right now in, uh, just let's say, Via Reggio in Torre del Lago in Italy. I met him in Mexico. He spoke no English. <laughs> I spoke no Italian. And we became buddies to the point where when I went to Italy, I stayed at his house because of the bicycle. There was yeah. just this commonality of like, show me a picture, kind of hand gesture this. Okay, like this. And a couple of words are the same. And you're like, wow, you've just bridged gaps between cultures um, strictly by riding a bicycle. Yeah. And so that's always been like, since I've come to understand that, um, I've ridden more and traveled more and sometimes I travel with a bike or sometimes, you know, just shoes and pedals. And if nowadays, if I can just travel with my carry on bag, it makes life that much easier where, Hey, I know a guy here. Hey, you got an extra bike or Hey, I can rent a bike for a week. Okay, cool. That's how I'm going to get around. And so bikes and, and you know, again, things to, to enjoy when you're done your ride. So whether it was wine or the local beer or, you know, is there a local spirit or something? It's just always been a part of culture. And I haven't worked around hospitality, you know, things like food and drink always go hand in hand. So like there's bike adventures I've had in Argentina where you ride through the wineries all day long and you just pick off wineries left and right. Um, and it's a blast. And you're riding through the vineyards, which is kind of what Kelowna is right now, where you ride and there's beautiful, like it's like a little Tuscany out here. There's yeah, hillsides sure. and there's wineries and there's vineyards and ride as hard as you want or stop where you want or do a tasting or go to this cafe or ride to the next town kind of thing. And so to me, it's a chance to be outdoors. You find people that are like-minded um, pretty easily sometimes uh, just by the commonality of a bicycle. And it's really interesting because of a bicycle, you get in a group ride, you get these people from all walks of life. Mm. Like I bartended for years. And so, you know, I pour the same beer, but 20 different guys are going to drink that beer and they got 20 different stories that I'll meet in that night. I go on a group ride, the same thing happens. We all have a bicycle in common. But one guy's a doctor, one guy's, you know, a mason, one guy's, uh, you know, a lawyer, one guy's a stay-at-home dad. It doesn't matter. Like, it, 
it really doesn't matter. One guy's retired. One guy's, you know, aspiring to become something. He's going to school. But we all ride a bike. We all tell some stories. And we all go in afterwards. Now, I look for the crew that, where do we start at a coffee shop? Where do we end at either a coffee shop or maybe it's a patio and a pint for that social camaraderie of it kind of thing. Like, to me, that's what the cycling world, uh, there are more guys that are getting out of the race world and they just want to enjoy riding a bike. Like, Ian Boswell kind of thing now, that's his big shtick. I think, I don't know if you were talking to him or I heard about him recently on one of the podcasts, but, um, like, that's his world right now. I don't want to race. I just want to ride bikes and kind of explore stuff and, and do it for the love of the ride kind of thing. So, those are the, the those are the people I like to hang out with now is just for the love of it and you know bike packing no different. Yeah, I was <laughs> gonna say bike packing has that same. I think that's what the 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 attraction for me was was just being in a group of people like minded people from all walks of life who all basically yeah. speak the same language and <clears throat> you know have the same yeah have just have the same passions that you do. So it's it just it helps bring people together. Yeah. What did you do in the wine world? Were you a sommelier or work in wineries or tours? Well, I've got my level two in, uh, in education wise, but I, um, I transitioned from working in the bars and nightclub world. I'm like, there's gotta be a way to still work, work in this hospitality in this, in this industry, but more in the daytime. So I worked for uh, a wine retail store, uh, two different ones in Calgary, uh, one bigger, one smaller. And then from there I transitioned into more, uh, working with and then working uh, kind of as a partner with um, a wine importer. So we're importing wines uh, out of Europe with cool little stories and trying to compare them to like the big guys that are mass producing stuff. And that's where the wine and the bike will start to kind of mash back and forth. And, um, and then from there, the goal was, okay, well, the last step was kind of, can you go work at a winery? And so my buddy, Graham Pierce, um, I had been watching him online for a while and he was doing this Ride with a Winemakers event. He was a winemaker, still is a winemaker, and he was hosting this event every year. First year was one day, then it turned into two days. And uh, it's basically, you know, 50 people. You show up on a Friday, we do a welcome dinner. Saturday morning, there's a little coffee, snacks. You do your ride. Then there's a lunch at a winery, afternoon to relax, massage, whatever. Uh, a winemaker's dinner. And then the next morning, same thing, light breakfast, a good ride. And then, you know, a barbecue lunch and everybody takes off. And so I'm like, man, this is the perfect world. And so that's where I was like, okay, this, how do I hang out with this guy more? Because I love where this is going. I'm combining wine and bikes. Yeah, I think the universe and, was trying to guide you. Just saying, no, no, <laughs> you, know, you have to have bikes involved in this somehow. <laughs> yeah, and it was weird. So I reached out to Graham and uh, he was working at Black Hills Winery at the time, uh, designing wine or making wine. And uh, he was the guy, I'm like, hey, what are the chances, you know, like Black Hills might be hiring? He's like, yeah, you know what? Send over a resume. And sure enough, so I got a job there. And then it just kind of transpired where now I'm in the Okanagan. Okay, cool. So I'm around wineries. And then you get to go know guys at other wineries and guys that ride bikes. And it was this cool thing where every winemaker we, you know, for this event also rode bikes. So like Dwight was a guy. Michael Barchier was one of the guys. Um, now we've had, you know, guys from Tinhorn have been out and, and you start to find more guys that are kind of in this real world and this crazy commonality, which almost don't even think exists, where you're like, wow, these winemakers that like to ride bicycles. Weird. <laughs> and so people, we just created this cool experience um, where we're like, let's combine these two worlds that people want and let's do it in a place like the Okanagan. Yeah, I, my parents uh, used to live in Kelowna, actually. And, um, oh, right on. Yeah, um, I can't remember cool. the, is it uh, right before you cross the bridge, Pandozi? 
Yeah, you know, yeah, right? for and, sure. then, yeah. and then you take Absolutely. that all, all the way down. I can't remember the beach that was right across from them. But if you stay on that road, you end up going out to um, the goat cheese like, farm, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. Carmelis. Is still yeah, there, yeah, sure. yeah. Um, but they used to yeah. live down there. And, uh, oh, that's awesome. And uh, I, I always thought we'd, we'd, we'd do wine tours and, you know, hit the Naramata bench and whatnot. And I was always, I, I roasted coffee for five years. And, oh, and yeah, wine, wine and coffee kind of pretty uh, absolutely common i you think start- there's that craft to it right and i always thought it'd be really cool to work at a wine place and and just learn that craft i think that'd be it's, fantastic and it's funny you say that because when you say coffee even like that's just part of it follows back to this whole silly italian culture what do you do over there like there's an espresso everywhere and an espresso in italy is like a, a euro you can't find an espresso anywhere here for a buck 50 yeah and it's good like Maybe it's not the best I can maybe win awards, but it's good drinkable and solid espressos over there. Oh, and so yeah. I'm like, yeah, like this is the stuff. And so, you know, the guys I try to hang out with more here are, hey, well, let's start, let's start with a coffee here. Or let's make sure we end up like the Sunday ride always ends at uh, Geo's, uh, Geo's spot right now because we're like, hey, end up at Geo's. We're going to have coffee there at the end, have a croissant, have something else, have a pastry. But then we sit outside, BS, tell some stories, have a cappuccino because it's still before noon. Um, and, you know, and then, okay, well, let's, let's be back in a, an hour or two. And there's all kind of craft breweries around now and stuff. Or, hey, you want wine? Let's go sit on a patio and, and enjoy something refreshing and stuff. And, yeah, it's, it's our local world kind of thing. So it, You've basically, it's the construct of the entire bike ride is around uh, <laughs> coffee and alcohol and other <laughs> pastries. <laughs> hey, you why, are you not allowed to drink cappuccinos after 12? What's going on? That. That's an Italian thing. It no, is. No I was milk. just going to ask if it was an Italian thing. That's so funny. No milk in the coffee afternoon. Oh, interesting. What's what's yeah. the cultural significance uh, of that? I don't know. There's. I'd have to ask a couple of the boys, but all I know is those are the rules and you don't break the rules. You break the rules, that's it. And you know what? Like, I, I've had people from Italy actually <laughs> listen to this podcast. So if you guys are listening right now or girls, uh, write me, my back myback40podcast at gmail.com <laughs> and give me the breakdown of the rules of coffee because, you know, as, as a former coffee snob, I, I, I'd say former, I, I, I dig that <laughs> stuff. I, I like the culture behind that. So that's interesting. Yeah. No, and, and coffee is one of those things, right? Like you, you can stop for a quick bite or a quick snack anywhere kind of thing. And it's, it was just a way, I guess what the bike and the coffee and even the wine afterwards all involved is it's the camaraderie and it's the story. Where what's your day like? Are you feeling strong? Are you feeling tired? Let's go ride a bike. Okay, that was a crazy climb. All that to say, it's a flat tire. The guy that dropped his chain, whatever it was. And now you go back and you kind of relive that. And there's this reminiscent. And then there's other stories from other adventures or trips you want to go on. Or you know, and you just it's all about the story and the fun of it. And that's where this whole little community, I guess nowadays, what you call it, is just exists. And you're like, yeah, cool. This guy and. For no other reason would you have ever met some of the people that you meet other than you were on a bike ride together and you started talking. And one thing led to another and I was like, hey, yeah, we got a couple of things in common. That's interesting. And okay, what do you do next Sunday? Yeah, let's, we're meeting here again. Great. Or, hey, I'm going on a trip or you should come to this event. Awesome. And so it kind of just flows from there. I think it'd be super fun to do. A, I, saw, I thought I saw a video online somewhere about a bunch of guys that went on a bikepacking trip with old bikes. <laughs> I damn I can't remember who put that one on but they all had they all had vintage bikes and I'm gonna try to find it and send it to you because it was fantastic if anyone yeah. knows what it is some write to me and direct me but um I can't even remember the riders that were on it but it was super old school like they were running 
you know, fully rigid steel, weird geometry bikes with racks and yeah. le- leather bags and, you know, high socks and, you know, just <laughs> different fashion. And, uh, it was really cool. It was a very rootsy video. I'm going to have to try to dig that up. I'll, well, find, I'll find it and I'll post it. There's some guys not too long ago that were trying to recreate like the 1921 or 1923 Tour de France. And so they dug up the old bikes and they mapped out the old route and with the same gear. And see, the thing was, back in the day, the race was the adventure. There was no guarantee. There was no team car. There were no food stops. It was like, like, bike, it was like bike pack racing, actually, more than anything. It's like, 100%. Yeah, like, ride your yeah. bikes through the Pyrenees. Okay, go. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you get like this bike and, you know, there's no gear. So you take off your back wheel before you go up the hill, swap it to the other side because that's got a, you know, a decent gear on it. Put that back on and off you go. Like the story of Campagnolo had to do with a guy getting his hands too cold uh, on a climb where he couldn't undo it, uh, his back wheel, and he lost the race. Well, you know what? The and rules it, are in bikepack racing. In bikepack racing, if you ride a single speed, you have to start and finish on the same gear. So those guys are soft. <laughs> They're soft. <laughs> I'm totally kidding, of course. <laughs> but but that's the kind of stuff. Like I look at these photos right now that are just plastered in my garage right now, and like the crowds that came out because it was just sheer, not even athleticism, but almost like, craziness and the adventure and like can they actually do it like that was the question is it actually possible like are they going to finish not like the tour nowadays like well they crashed out or they had this or whatever you know they didn't for these reasons and back then it was like is it possible like okay there was 50 guys now there's only five left like this last year when the tour went on and they got shut down in that like second last stage uh because there was snow at the top because they're soft. Uh, hey, I'll, I'll be the guy right I'm now that'll call them out and be like, yeah, you know what? Back in the day, there was no team car. If that race was anything like it used to be, all the teams would have got together. Fine, send your masseuses and your mechanics ahead. Go dig out a pass. Get your rider to the other side and descend. And the first one to cross the line wins. Yeah. I'm, to- I'm totally kidding about stuff. the soft thing. I feel really bad about it. <laughs> really seem to be emphasizing that. But no, it was just a different world, right? It's, you know, they were just riding yeah. what they had. And, and, um, and yeah, I've read some old stories about the Tour de France and, and just, it, it ha- does, it does, uh, ha- it draws parallels with bike pack racing. Cause it's like, like you said, there was no team car. There is no, yeah. no extra wheel when you get a flat, no, no extra bike. <laughs> if you have a crazy mechanical, you know, it's, it was a totally different sport. You know, it was just f- badass. It was super hardcore, man, which was why those guys were rock stars, right? Well, that's, that's the same as, okay. Who's uh, Vlad Progi? Uh, you had him on, you interviewed him uh, not too long ago. Brian Sklarczyk. Yeah. Yeah. So I reached out to him and stuff, but on his podcast, like you thought like back in the race days, you know, yeah, you put up a hand or whatever. Such and a cool story, but, yeah. But now you're out there, and so the funny thing is, with modern day racers, what is your bike fixing, bike mechanical skills? Like, do you carry a chain breaker, you know, even with you, or like, do you know how to fix a chain? Or if you broke a cable, what are you gonna do? Kind of deal. I think it's one of like, the most important parts of of going on these adventure races is you gotta know that shit. You gotta know yeah. how to fix that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and, and that's kind of the fun of it, like working on these old bikes and tinkering around and taking them apart and rebuilding them and finding parts or whatever sometimes. You're like, oh, you know what? I can get grease or I can get bearings, and that's the thing versus 
some of the new stuff, you, <laughs> okay, you know what? Stay here for three weeks because we got to order a part because we can't just replace it. Yeah. You know, or, you know, and there's, I think it was on one of your other shows where somebody was there. I don't know if it's a continental divide or whatever the race was, but where it was kind of a, they found the guy and the guy had to like overnight get something, but he said he could get it. So they just hung out and waited because he was either that or he wasn't going to finish the race. Yeah. Well, that was probably know, with uh, RJ Sawyer. He had a major mechanical. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so you're like, well, I guess at least uh, they can do something kind of thing. And, you know, we we're talking today with a guy on this little spin we were on, like steel bikes. If you crack it, you can weld it. You can fix it. Yeah. What are you going to do with a, a carbon bike? Unless you're carrying epoxy with you uh, and you're going to try to let it, you know, dry and set somewhere, but you're not going to ride it to the next spot kind of thing. Like, yeah. And you know, tr- truth be told, I mean, these bikes are, they're pretty bomber. Like, Oh, they're awesome. Yeah, they're they're pretty bomber. Like, I, I don't want to shit talk carbon too much because I know a lot of <laughs> a lot of people are, you know, because everyone, everyone has an opinion and everyone's allowed to Absolutely. have their opinion. Absolutely, no, and uh, 100%. so yeah, no, no, yeah, no judgment here, obviously, but it's no, uh, for sure, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I love the carbon stuff because, like, I've had a chance to ride something new or stuff. Like when I was in Mexico, we got invited um, by Specialized actually at the time because we had Specialized bikes at this bike shop or bike little. Uh, a tour camp thing that we were doing down in Mexico. And uh, they said, hey, you guys, you know, you're using our bikes. Why don't you come up? Because the Giro d'Italia puts them on a Grand Fondo outside of Mexico City in Toluca. So if you remember, like, Merckx set the world record, uh, time hour, you know, one-hour record in Mexico City. Well, they're at elevation. So you go and you ride. We rode up in Toluca. And we had the brand-new Specialized, whatever it was. This was, like, three years ago. And, man, talk about feeling like a pro, but you walk up and, there's your bike and it's shiny and it's glistening and it's got all the gears and you've got these nice little 80 mil deep dish wheels. And you're like, geez, electronic shifting, the little dampening in the, um, you know, I think one like, guy had one in the seat, one was in the, um, in the stem or something like that. And you're like, wow. Okay. Like this is technology and it's super cool to ride for sure. And you're like, but would I spend, you know, 12 grand on it? I'm like, I don't know if I spend $12,000 or not on this thing. But it's super cool to ride for sure. Like, and what, like, I remember years ago, I got invited out by Trek to come out to Wisconsin and we rode in Madison. And this is when DI2 um, was just going to start, you know, breaking over into the commercial, like the public world. They've been using it in the pros for a while. And so getting a chance to, like, for the first time, test out what electronic shifting actually was. Wow. Like, touch a button and your gears, like, you can't screw it up kind of thing. It was just, it was super cool and amazing. You're like, Wow, technology like that's something. So yeah, it's it's interesting for sure where it's come. Yeah, it's the the technology the technology is crazy, and you know we even even just basic te- technology like wheel size, right? Like yeah, wheel size is, <laughs> wheel size has been huge, and it's been so controversial. And um, you know, yeah. some some people would argue that. Um, I heard this on a, I think it was the bike Bible and, and a test rider was riding like a, a 27 plus. I think it might've been their first 27 plus they, they, they had ridden and then they sat down and they were kind of talking about their thoughts and they were like, well, doesn't it, it just, I liked it, but it just kind of, don't these big tires just make it easier? And, and I was thinking it's like, well, yeah, everything that's been developed in bicycle technology technology has been to make cycling either more comfortable or more efficient, <laughs> like, you know, suspension, suspension, seat posts, 
like you know just sure. just suspension alone has been you know the the game changer really or or you know shifting gears being able to ride the tour de france in 1930 and be able to shift oh, gears yeah. right like like every step in bicycle technology has been there to improve the machine right so it's just <laughs> like yeah technology we need technology yeah but it's still well, cool to go back and like ride these vintage rigs right it's cool on that technology side of things it's funny but on the water bottle i've got right now our uh, our bidon one um i've the spanish fan does have a comic strip also and um it's kind of fun but the comic that's on that water bottle is the original gear shifting and it goes back to the tour de france it was called the margarita uh the margarita shifter basically you know it was allowed in the general italia a year before it was allowed in the tour de france um this ability to change gears and with this, you know, new little contraption of basically reaching back and taking this little, uh, like just looks like a rod that basically pulls the chain up onto the other cog. Yeah. Instead of having to get off, take off your wheel, flip it around. Like you're like, Oh, if I just reach back far enough, I can put it on this gear and I can still keep pedaling. So and now, and now it's freaking Bluetooth. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's just yeah, crazy. I, I know. Well, and it's funny how everything now, like, it's funny in the full circle. Like, you see, I don't know what you've got for gearing on your bike, but, like, where the whole one-by world has come to be. Yeah. You're like, one, one by 10, one by 11, one by 12. And you're like, geez, like, I'll tell you what, my, my old school bike, yeah, I've got bikes that are still one-by. It was the original one-by. <laughs> one-by three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, the funny thing is the gearing on those old bikes, though, was just is miserable, which is why most guys yeah. don't, like, if the gear choice you have, like on the Lignano that I've ridden a bunch now, is like fifty three forty nine or fifty two forty nine, I'm like, that's like what guys are putting on the back of their bike, not on the front of their bike. Yeah. Like it's as if yeah, now yeah, it's, it's flip flopped, really. Yeah, but like, I mean, really, if, that's yeah. Sorry, I, I got all kind of technical. I was thinking that's probably that was more of a clearance choice, I think, because you can get the same gear range just by having a smaller. Well, that's right. the joke. Yeah. Like yeah. if I had a 4923 and I'm climbing, you're like, yeah, hopefully you can get it to the 23 because the 20 or the 21 or whatever. Well, that was your second best choice. Yeah. Because if your gears were a little bit off. So, but now if you look at what some of these gear ratios are, they're like, well, we can put this really small one on the front and this really big one on the back. I'm like, no word of a lie. I could honestly take the bikes that I have, swap them, and I would have the same gear ratio just in the different parts of the bike. Yeah, I right. should just put the handlebars on the other side, and I'll be laughing right yeah, now. Yeah, it's but. so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Um, yeah, I love bikes, man. I like talking about bikes. You, you, well, you have you seem to have a way deeper uh, knowledge and history of bikes than I do. That's for sure. I think a lot of that just goes into though, like with the clothing. It's kind of like where did it come from as to where's it going? Like even you know the belt drive stuff, or I don't know a year or two ago they were working on this whole spindle idea where there was going to be like no gears or no chain. There's just this spindle that was going to kind of turn this like drive shaft. Oh, well, if you go Too back crazy. far enough, that was a thing like caps original bike store in, I don't know, just outside of Vancouver. I think it's in Langley, you know, um, uh, where is it? It's outside oh, of Vancouver though, but caps though, like he has one sitting on the wall there and I took a photo of it. I'm like, Oh look, you guys think this is new and cool. You're just creating something. They tried it in 1923. It didn't work back then. Either. <laughs> it doesn't work now. Like, yeah. <laughs> I remember I worked in a bike shop in, in Whistler and um, mountain riders, part of the source of yeah. sports group. 
um, that was a good job. That was a pretty fun job as a, as a youngster. But, uh, this guy came in and, and he was demoing, he's showing off this bike, you know, kind of like a startup yeah. and, it, and it had a, uh, it had like a, it had a gear that, that rode on, you know, on the front hub. And then <laughs> there was an interfacing gear, you know, like a 90 degree gear, like a cone or whatever. And then it had an interfacing cone. And then there was an actual like, uh, flex cable that went through housing that kind of went up along. The, <laughs> yeah. And then it attached to the, to the, it matched the gear in the back. So as you pedaled <laughs> forward, it was just a one-to-one gear and it would just drive yeah. the front wheel. But it was, <laughs> we, we took it for a test ride. It was like, no, yeah, no, that doesn't, it's <laughs> not required. You, do, you don't need to put power up front anyway. <laughs> Some crazy ideas. It's so funny. Okay. But even like the internal hub gate, like I've got a Thermi Archer right now sitting here that I'm going to rebuild, take it off the old 26 uh, wheels that it's on and probably put it on a more modern, uh, you know, hoop on it kind of thing. That's cool. Something a little bit bigger, but it's a three speed. It's all internal. It'll all be sealed and stuff. But nowadays, like maybe that's, and I know guys were going that route for the commuter world. They're like, you know, sealed hub basically with 10 or 12 gears or whatever stuck inside this thing. And when the belt drive came out, like that was your indestructible commuter, like ride it through whatever. You can't destroy this thing. Oh, that three speed, man. I'd, I'd, I'd bust those paws so fast. <laughs> <laughs> I have experience with that with hubs, man. Just I don't know if yeah. it's just a, I can push a big gear, but climbing and Whistler, I always did that. I blew free hub bodies apart. <laughs> I would just bust all the paws until I got like a DT Swiss. And then it was the game changer. Yeah. And that thing just worked and worked and worked. It was just a, a workhorse. Yeah, I well, still have it, that thing, actually. That's cool. Ago. See. Yeah. Now, okay, what about tires these days? So, like, guys are using all kinds of things. So, like, on your bike, tubeless setup or not, or tubes, or um, like, where are you sitting on that? In the Well, in the winter, in fat bikes, I, I tend to just ride tubes because it's more like a, you know, if I get a, if I get a flat tubeless, it can be a pain in the ass to get her going again. And I don't really want to carry around CO2. And, yeah. you know, it's just more of a survival tactic than... You know, because it gets cold here. So, you know, if I'm riding in minus 30 sure. and I, I break down and, and <laughs> in the woods, I'm two hours from home. It would suck, right? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> camp, but, start camping. <laughs> yeah. But in the summer, like on my, my bike packing rig and my single speed, I, yeah, I run tubeless. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a no brainer to me, you know, for that. The, the reason I was asking, because I've come across tires recently with some of these old bikes. Have you ever seen a solid tire? I have, yeah. Yeah, well, like the, you know, and you glue them on, right? Like glue-ons? Well, the one I saw, oh, man, these guys had it in Mexico. And I'm like, hey, can you sell those or can you buy more? Because I'll buy them. <laughs> no, they, there was like a, a bead. Like You kind of put it on, and then it just kind of fits on there. And maybe you're supposed to glue it on or something. But just the fact that it was sold, like it wasn't light. But the fact knowing that you would never get a flat tire. Oh, sorry. I'm thinking about something else. I understand what you mean. Solid. Uh, yeah, that'd be crazy. That wouldn't be very comfortable at all. No, but yeah. And I'm like, huh, how would it ride? How wide could it be? Oh. Um, you know, like it'd be so heavy. Be- I think if you wanted the, the, the type of volume and traction patch, you'd have to make this, this massive, I don't know. It would just be massive. I know. I know that in the downhill world, I don't even know what they're called. It's so not my world. But it's like a it's like a, t- a core that goes in inside the, the tire, so it keeps from um, pinching. So you still go tubeless, yeah. but you have this extra filler that basically goes around. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, and I guess, I guess it, it. You know, you can run lower pressures. You don't have to worry about like destroying your wheel. 
I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm talking about in the downhill world, so don't <laughs> listen to me. <laughs> don't listen to me. Oh, so funny. <clears throat> well, okay, like pumps these days, I guess. We were, I was reading a couple of these forums, like my buddy Brent Piercy, he's got this great almond. He's rebuilt up his old pump, uh, with his old Silka pump and stuff. Like CO2 versus pumps, like you know, carrying stuff, uh, stuff that sits actually on your bike versus, you know, are how much stuff are you carrying on you versus you're just packing it and you're leaving it on your bike? Cause back in the day, it's kind of funny, but like, you know, I'm looking at a, an old Ignano right now on the wall that has, you know, those, those frame pumps and stuff. Yeah. Are, are you seeing more guys, you know, across your travels that are carrying, going back to a frame pump and stuff or. I don't know. I mean, I think it's personal choice. <clears throat> I don't, yeah? I don't tend to want to carry anything on the outside of a bag because it's just going to get dirty and grubby and grimy. Right. Like to have a pump on the outside on a, you know, it would just, it would just wreck it. I don't know. It's again, it's all personal, but I, I carry a pretty, I don't even know what it is. I think it's a lasagne, but it's tiny. (laughs) It's friggin' tiny. And I want it. It fits in my top tube bag. It's so small, Okay, but it's, uh, it's efficient. It's a great little pump and it's got a little screw on thing, which is nice. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's kind of personal, but yeah, I I wouldn't want to put a pump on the outside of my, my rig. I don't think I'd probably lose it. (laughs) Just losing it. Okay, and then bag choices nowadays. Like, there's all kind of cool stuff. Like, some guys are still using racks. Some guys are going back to just, you know, with the designs. Um, I know, like, Porcelain Rockets got some, and there's a, there's a ton out there. But, like, I'm just looking at this one picture of uh, Luciano back in the day, like, his old Aroica bike where canvas bag, leather bag that's kind of in your frame. Maybe there's one off the back, you know, like, tube around your neck, and off you go, and there's your adventure kind of thing, like, where, and I've seen these frame bags or uh, handlebar bags kind of coming back again. So it's kind of interesting how that's become a full circle. Well, every, yeah, everything just seems to come back, I think, in that world, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm digging around while you're talking. I'm looking, I'm trying to find that photo. Uh, <laughs> Baruti, uh, Luciano Baruti. Yeah. yeah, and he's got that canvas front bag, right? Yeah. And it's funny, if you look at the drop bars in that picture too, it has they have a very uh, similar uh, geometry to modern, like the wood chipper. You know, it's, you know what I mean? Like it, it has that Uh low, but it's, it's not a really deep drop. It's kind of like a half drop kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. No. Yeah. It's comical. And that's why, that's part of the reason I love these old bikes. Cause around Europe guys, like for the Eroica, I don't know. I've got a photo somewhere where they're riding these bikes. Like they're bringing them from Belgium or from Germany or from France or from Italy or from wherever England and stuff. And they're like, yeah, look, I found it's from like 1921 and they'll go and they'll ride like, the 200k on this little bike on one gear and just power the heck but what they've come and it's funny if you ever get the chance to watch these guys what they do is they basically bomb down the hill because they've got wider tires because they could back in the day um widest tire they can put on there bomb down this hill on these gravel roads at the highest speed they can kind of survive and kind of slingshot your way and pedal your butt off as far up and let momentum take you up to the other side and then it's the most beautiful poetic kind of dismount off hop and almost like a cycle cross oh yeah run, for sure back to the top of the hill hop back on and then like keep rolling again this like, is this is kind of right up my alley like i'm looking at this <laughs> looking at this picture of um uh, who is that guy italian cyclist yeah uh, broody and you know yeah. it's it doesn't look like it's super old it looks like he's just you know it's color it could be from the from the 80s but you know the bike he's riding looks like a gravel bike you know, yeah. it's got well, the tire, the tire, those are big tires for, for a bike like that, you know? So the cool thing with him though, is that 
he's one of these guys. He wore the number one for the Eroica, and the Eroica started in like the 90s with the intention of keeping the white roads of Italy alive because they wanted to pave them all. So like, no, no, look, we're going to hold events. And now there's like five, 6,000 people, and there's events like the Eroica around the world, and they have their own versions. But he's always kind of been this iconic guy. And he's always kind of, uh, when he passed away, they actually, um, a couple of years ago, they had like, you know, there's a, an armband for him, and guys rode in his memory, and they've actually kind of bronzed his bike in the town of Gaioli, and now is his kid rides and stuff, and kind of keeps the legend going. And it was all about, you know, like the power of those legs, and, you know, that just that sheer heart and determination. And those old tires or those wheels that he's got on there, I've got a set. If you saw that Schwinn I posted on the on the Spanish Fan Development Club on on that actual group, um, that Schwinn has the same size. They're old school 28s. Oh, cool. And so now they would measure out probably to be like a 700 by about a 40C. Right. But that's that's the size of those tires back in the day. And they had, you know, they didn't care if there was because you rode on gravel back then and dirt and mud and whatever. And so they're like, yeah, traction's a good thing. We need some of that. It doesn't need to just be fast kind of deal. But yeah, these guys are just like it's crazy. I, I, at some point, we'll get an old bike just for you to hop on it and like compare the same and the differences of them. But it's so much fun. Actually, I just found a an article on outside, um, outside online. Um, it, yeah. I don't know how you'd find it because oh no, it's like outside. On, uh, I'll just read the, it's the Italian race saving the quirky old school soul of cycling, <laughs> and it's uh, basically a front picture of that of that rig, and it looks like. What's that? Is that a brake? Is that a crazy brake on that? Where, where it pushes down on the tire. Yeah, that's crazy. It's kind of off by his right hand, like below yeah. his. Yeah, that's that's rad. Well, so on that so Schwinn I posted, cool. if you look closer, um, and I've got another two that are like that that I'm going to keep and keep riding and enjoying, but those are my cruisers, is that there's no cables. Everything is on a rod. Yeah, okay, cool. And so this that's is cool. going back to where they didn't even want to pull up on the uh, on the actual wheel itself, what they wanted to do is they wanted to push down on the tires. Like, you know, this is basically going back to almost like the fix. This would have been just after probably the fixed gear days kind of world where, well, the only way to slow down is to like pedal slower <laughs> kind of game. So yeah, that's very cool. That's a cool bike, man. I just found it here with that saddle. Yeah. That saddle looks like my cell, uh, cell anatomica. looks like the same yeah. thing with springs underneath it. It's so funny. Yeah. yeah. Well, and again, you ride those old Brook saddles or, or those like, you know, there's Italian saddles of all kinds and all those old brands made them. And you, if you break, take the time to break those in, you know, that little extra cushion, that little extra give, it's nice and it's comfy. And yeah, you could spend, you know, 200 kilometers in a day. Like the original tour or the original Giro Italia rode around the entire country of Italy. Like that was the race. <laughs> you start up here, you go all the way down around, you come back up and guys would like, if you had a, a favorite or from a certain region of Italy and your racer was racing and somebody was beating them, they throw tax on the road or they try to make them crash or whatever because <laughs> their region guy wasn't winning. But then when they cross into a different province or state, oh, okay, well, now, you know, this guy was the, you know, the favorite and this guy was like, okay, let's hound this guy. Let's bother this guy. So, like, all the stories that go with that stuff are just, oh, they're just so rich and fun and awesome. Like, cycling, that's all it is. Can you recommend um, any uh books that that touch on the subject of you know old time tour de france riding or like do you, yeah. do, you do you have time to even read books uh yeah because i barely I, do. I, always, I, I read all kind of stuff i'm actually in the middle of the 7-eleven book right now okay um, and it's funny because that's actually a pretty new version compared to you know what we're talking about 
uh, a lot of the stuff I look up is usually articles, guys that I know from Europe or, uh, have written online. And I'm just like, okay. And I, I know I, I'll send you some links of some stuff. Yeah, please um, do. But fun. there's, there's just cool stuff. We'll be like back in the day, like, like even right now, um, Mateo's the son of, uh, the guys that created Gio's Torino, like Gio's the bicycle and they have their own event. And so to meet Mateo and to see what he's doing to bring Gio's to modern day cycling, and his dad's still there and his dad's still part of it. And so to watch this, like, again, that's an Italian thing or a European thing where the generational thing, like we don't have that in North America because we're just not old enough. Like, you know, unless you're doing the same thing that your father and your grandfather also did, those are kind of anomalies. Whereas back in parts of Europe, that was, that was life. Yeah. Um, and so like, that's the stuff we're like, Hey, so, you know, Mattel, like, what are you doing these days? Like, how, how does that work? And, you know, like you're using new technology, but you know, what do you do with these old bikes? And well, what does your new bikes look like? And it's super interesting to to learn and just to understand. But then you get to some of these places, and there's there's literally museums of these things that are just sitting. Like my buddy Giuseppe, um, you know, you find him on Facebook and stuff, and he's got <laughs> anybody I take there, they're mind blown because they think, oh, hey, cool, I got 20 bikes right now. Like I'm I'm not like Giuseppe's got four garages full and all he does is restore stuff and like back to brand new um they'll paint it they have original parts same with the steel vintage guys like uh joe and sam and alex and those guys like joe is from caviani and stuff and listening to what these guys do to bring these old bikes back to life is so cool so you're like well what are you reading or where are you getting this information from and some of it's stories some of it's just again it's a coffee shop some old guy that's around again the social side of europe europe is well, this guy was around when that happened, or this guy's grandfather, or this guy's at this cafe, and they'll tell you. They're like, oh, like my this Alessandro's uh, buddy Gio, uh, Gino in Italy, he gave me a pair of shoes to ride for the Eroica. They're his nice. shoes from like the 60s. No way. But he, still, but he still has them in a box. How did they, were they comfy? Well, they were they were fine. I ended up buying and now having a custom pair made for myself. Awesome. For like the old leather, like with the basically, <laughs> it's leather on the bottom, and they, basically attach another piece of leather with a slit and then that's now you clamp into your toe straps and you drop your toe strap down and now you've got your clip and pedals right like but he'll sit there and he'll tell me these stories i'm like wow and again with the books and the articles most of them have to get translated over into english because they're in french or they're in spanish or they're in italian or they're in some other dialect or, or sorry, language because they're in a different country like which is where this stuff all originated so um, but yeah, the, the history is so cool. Like, you know, even you look now like Specialized or Giant or Trek and you go back to when they started out, like what were they using for bikes and their geometries and what are their, like, I've had a chance to meet and chat with sometimes Gary Fisher still. Oh yeah. Cool. Like there's a guy like, you want to talk bike packing and stuff like these guys mountain bike off what a, nowadays would look like a bike cruiser. Oh yeah. Like, for sure. Clunk, like, clunkers, right? Yeah. yeah, take your you know bike to the top of a mountain, and you got a coaster brake to make it down. Go. <laughs> yeah, like skinny round quarters and like the plaid shirt with the bell bottom jeans and like hair blown in the wind. And then okay, <laughs> yeah, there's beer at the. Oh, it's nuts. Yeah, there's so much history. It's re- it's so cool. Hey, does does Axel Merckx does he live in in Kelowna? Yeah, he lives out here, and uh, he's got a an event called uh, well the Axel Merckx Grand Fondo is. Uh, it's usually in uh, June, July, I think, um, and in Penticton. And uh, it's a heck of an event. It's super fun. But I've ridden with Axel a few times. He's got, um, well, he's got his, 
his junior team. Um, and then he's also started something called the Red Devils uh, for the kids out here as a bike development program. So, and it, like the guy's just a sheer inspiration. Like coming from, you know, his dad being a legend and who he is and all that stuff. And last year when we were um, talking about like, hey, you know, like we're doing this thing in Whistler. Would you be interested in something as a classics category for, you know, your fondo? He's like, yeah, cool. But how do we get people involved? Or how do we, I'm like, Axel, the cool thing is your dad is a god of cycling. <laughs> so get get him on anything. Get like get him to sign something or like whatever, a pair of socks that he wore or a, a, a cap or, or anything, an old photograph. Um, like anything that the guy touches is just that inspiration. And that's why it was kind of cool to be a part of that as kind of a startup with that classics category because we're like, man, he has like the richest information source. And like, you know, I would love to meet Eddie one day just because the stories and like the hardships and what it was like. And like now I can go on YouTube and I can go back and you can hear interviews and stuff. And life wasn't easy. And you know how he just, you know, destroyed and wanted to win everything he entered. And we were just talking about this today. Like a guy like Eddie, like when they say, all these modern day guys that are trying to crush his record for like, let's say the most Tour de France wins or Jura wins, or, you know, maybe it's the classics. What's not taken into account. First off, never mind the bike, but was the guys back in the day, they raced everything. They raced the classics. They weren't specialists. They were cyclists. These guys raced on the track in the winter to make money. They raced the grand tours. They raced the classics. They raced wherever they could. And they wrote their hearts out with very little money or backing or anything kind of thing support wise um, and they did it and they achieved crazy times and like just finishing was amazing so like yeah every time I get a chance to like talk to Axel and again Axel wrote in the pros too and so you know what's his experience like and what he's doing is so cool that he's taking his experience and his heritage and his background and he's passing it on he's sharing it with you know guys that are kind of like feeder camps into the pros and they're racing you know across North America and then the local kids that are like they're learning how to ride and learning how to race and learning all these, you know, fundamentals. And I think it's super cool that he's kind of uh, taking all that and is sharing it now and, and making it kind of making the sport richer, especially locally right now. So I think it's super cool. That's great, man. Thanks for saying all that. Um, I, I didn't mean to take attention away from, you know, it, you know, this podcast and, and you and, but I, <laughs> you know, sorry about that, <laughs> but no, it just came, good. It, just, good. it just came to mind. Cause I, I, I did a podcast with um, Tyler Hamilton and, Pete Hockenhall yeah. of uh, Adventure Audio. I don't know if you heard that one, but I think he had mentioned yeah. that. Oh man, I think uh, I think Axel's out in the Okanagan. You should call him up, and and um, I'm interested in talking to him. So oh. if if you could connect us, I'd appreciate that. I think it'd be really. I'd, I'd be like, I'd be such a dummy next to talking to that guy about bikes. <laughs> like just the the amount of like you said, the history and the heritage. But uh, it'd be interesting well, to see kind of everything you were talking about. I'd like to talk to him about that. So well, and the cool thing with talking to Axel is he's a down to earth guy. He's a great guy, and and just like you can't be a dummy because it's kind of like when you have the background and knowing what he is, he's he's a humble and he's a good guy and he he means well. And so he's just gonna sit there and he'll answer questions, but he'll probably even like you know even ask you back some questions. And you know you'll get so much out of a, a conversation with him and you know his wife Jody and stuff and what they do just in the community. Like it's it's super cool. And then you get guys like you know he was one of the first guys that to okay maybe i'm not gonna race pro but what can i still do in the cycle world to kind of keep it going and now you see guys like you know Ryder hedgehog has got his tour and you know phil guyman in the south uh he's got you know his little cookie thing going on and there's all these guys that are like they have experience in the cycling world but how can they take that now like my buddy um ryan dewald uh raced 
well, back in the day, he raced, what was it, uh, Perry Roubaix, I think he says like, like 2002 or something. And now he's got a team called Team Skyline, and he's out of Pennsylvania, but all he's doing is like, he's still racing, but he's trying to get these kids into racing and teach them stuff. And like, here's strategies, here's how to train, here's like the mental side, like once you're in the pack, like, okay, make a break here or, or do this. And, you know, the guys, you know, he's got a van, they tour around and they try to hit all these races and, you know, they got their UCI license. And so, you know, maybe not the best for this season, but it's exciting for me when you get to see that these guys that maybe never made it as, you know, the number one star, um, you know, in the cycling world, like, you know, maybe they're not as recognized or, or, but they're doing, they're taking their background. And this is what guys do in Europe. This is what I love about Europe too, is that they're now that local hero and they can share all that and they can make a brand or a business and they can live off of that because so many guys, from my understanding, like, you know, you race it and then what do you do? You know, do you have a secondary education or are you going to, you know, like what job do you fall back on kind of thing? Yeah, I guess they imagine, I imagine they just want to give back and, and what better way to do that than to, to be doing something you're so passionate about right? and sharing that with, yeah. with everybody. I think that's very cool. Yeah, I, I'd like to talk to him about his, his programs sure. and what yeah. he's doing. If we could hook that up, that'd be awesome. Absolutely. It's, it's, this, for sure. this is an interesting conversation for me because I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not really a roadie and it's, it's interesting to talk to another uh, demographic <laughs> of cyclists. It's been really, really enjoyable, Curtis. And cool. yeah, awesome. I, I really had a good time chatting with you. Do you, Thanks, do you man. want to, um, I got to land this plane actually, man. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you want to um, uh, just remind everyone again where they can find you and, and uh, Spandex Panda? What's the best way? Yeah, hundred percent. Like, we're if you Google Spandex Panda, it's gonna come up. Uh, we're on Instagram, uh, the Spandex Panda. There's a Facebook page. There's a Facebook group. We're on Twitter also. Uh, but yeah, check it out. Drop me a line on Instagram. Uh, I do all the conversations back and forth for that. Or if you're on LinkedIn, um, there's contact on the website itself. But yeah, click through the page. Give me some feedback. Give me some, you know, what you what you, what's missing. What you love to have. What nobody's making. What are some faults maybe of something that you bought? You're like, man, I wish guys could just figure this out. And, you know, or if you have a team or a club or, you know, even a, an event and you want to do a collaboration, uh, I'm always ears. Uh, and you never know. It's just, you know, it's a conversation away from creating something great next kind of thing. So, yeah, it's it's been awesome talking to you. And it's it's kind of tickled a bit of a, or sorry, scratched a niche, I should say, for I, I could awesome. totally see me doing like a Fondo on like a single <laughs> speed old school steel bike like that. With I could totally be into that. That'd be fun. So I really want to awesome. keep in touch with you. 100%. And um, yeah, it was a pleasure tonight, Curtis. So thanks so much. You bet. Thank you, Steve. All right, we'll stay in touch. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Have a great night. You bet. You too. All right, bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And I can tell you, man, I want to get like a vintage bike and do a Fondo on it, like a single speed vintage road bike. And, uh, yeah, I do like, yeah, it'd be fun. I think it'd be super fun. Um, I've changed my mind on road biking maybe a little bit. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, I want to thank Curtis again for his time. Thank all of you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, the spandexpanda.com. Check him out. Uh, if you want to support the MyBack40 podcast, you can do so. You can head on over to myback40.org slash support and check out the support options there. Um, I'm going to have some merchandise coming up, as I said at the beginning of the podcast. So uh, those who support me will be rewarded in some way. And I thank you in advance for your support. I also want to reach out to Cycling 101 and Rebound Cycle and thank them for their support. 
um, couldn't couldn't do this without you guys. And uh, I really appreciate all your help and support over the last few months. And uh, yeah, just want to say thanks. If you want to reach out to me, you can do so. You can email me at myback40podcast at gmail.com. You can send me voice intros like Joanne's at the beginning. Um, feedback and guest suggestions. I love hearing from you guys. So uh, please reach out. And uh, all, I, all I wanted to say was to uh, be well, be healthy, eat well, hang out with your, with your family. And um, yeah, be healthy. Keep the rubber side down. Mm-hmm.